Okay. Um, I hope everybody's ready for this one. This is, um, we'll start, we'll start, we'll start. I don't know we'll, if I am. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, Mark and I are going to talk about Hollywood and artificial intelligence. Could not be a hotter topic. Could not be a hotter topic. Um, we are going to talk about things surrounding the strike currently in Hollywood, but we're not going to talk about it directly. So please don't get confused. We're not taking an opinion on that, um, and nor should we, because there are many parts of that that have nothing to do with AI and that we don't necessarily understand ourselves. First question from Atif Raza. What part of Hollywood's business model will feel the most disruption due to AI? So there's there's kind of two different layers of this, um, you know, that we should, I think, talk about. Um, and, you know, they're kind of together, but they're kind of separate. So so one is the disruptions to the Hollywood business model that were already happening before AI. Um, and yeah, the, due to streaming. Due to streaming. And so the, 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 and the, the strikes that are happening, and just for people who haven't been tracking this currently today, uh, both the writers and the actors in Hollywood, both of their unions are on strike. Um, and so, you know, all, all production right now in L.A. Uh, is uh, in, in, in Hollywood and, you know, in American entertainment is, is essentially shut down. Um, and the strikes started uh, as strikes over streaming um, and they started out as strikes over the changes to the business model of Hollywood and the business model of, you know, in, in this case, the writers and the actors um, and how they make money and how much money they make and how, you know, so forth. Um, what rights they have, um, you know, the, the strike started around, around around those changes, and then kind of as the strike was gearing up a few months ago, the AI you know kind of thing hit, um, and 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 all of a sudden you started seeing all these examples you know online of people starting to use AI to put together you know short short movies and write scripts, uh, you know, or, or drafts of scripts or you know do other kinds of things, and and so the, the the strikes have kind of morphed from a streaming strike into an AI strike, kind of kind of in mid stride, and so these. These issues are kind of, you know, in other words, like there would have been yeah. a strike just on the basis of the changes to the to the streaming thing. So, so maybe we could actually, maybe we should just start there. Um, and it's a little bit off from the the AI topic, but I think it, it's the foundation of what, what's happening right now in the, in the entertainment industry. Which basically, what's happening, and I have a question for you, kind of coming up in this, Ben. Um, yeah. What's what's happening basically is that, you know, the, the Hollywood business model, you know, it, it's it's always changed. Like it's changed a lot over the last hundred years. You know, it used to be based on live entertainment, then it became based on recorded entertainment, right? And then it became based on, you know, at some point, you know, the, you know, video cassette, um, you know, VHS rentals, and then later on yep. DVD sales, um, and then of course, you know, you know, rerun, you know, TV reruns and syndication and so forth. So there, there are all these kind of historical kind of changes to the model, but. Basically, things had settled into to kind of a pretty nice groove as far as a lot of people in Hollywood were concerned, you know, kind of a, basically right before streaming. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the DVD thing was, you know, awesome. Yeah. So TV shows basically started to have three streams of revenue. They were they had their first run uh, revenue when they were first on the air. Then they had reruns, what are what's it called syndication. So reruns and syndication where they were sold, you know, in later years for, for airing, you know, by, by, by other people later on. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then, and then the DVD, DVD sales was, was, was this huge boon. And so, and then, and then, you know, you know, movies, you know, very similar, they, they, they sold through what were called the windows. And so they, they, you, you would, you would go see a movie. If you wanted to see a movie when it first came out, you would buy a movie ticket. Um, and then there was another window a few months later, which was pay-per-view. Mm -hmm. Um, right. And then, uh, you know, through cable or, or, uh, satellite, uh, TV services. And then, and then ultimately the, those movies would be sold for TV distribution and, and, and for, and for DVD sales. And so they were actually probably like four revenue streams for movies. And basically what's, what happened to streaming is it sort of collapsed all that down into just streaming. 
right? And yep. so now, you know, most movies come out on streaming or cut over to streaming right away. Most TV shows come out on streaming or cut over to streaming right away. Um, and basically, the economics of streaming are very different because the the the, well, the, the streaming model is obviously very different to start with, which is it's sort of a you know sort of a flat monthly fee for yeah, kind of all, all you can eat. watch. Exactly, and 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 then the other thing is like there's no premium price, effectively no premium pricing within the the streaming services, and so any given TV show or movie they don't charge you extra, like it, it's part of that bundle. And so, so what happened is basically um, streaming looked like it, it went from looking like it was a, another boon to the producers and creators of entertainment, which was it looked like it was like a fourth or fifth revenue stream that was going to be additive. And instead, what happened is it basically turned entertainment into a flat fee business. And so today, if you make a movie or TV show for streaming, you get paid a flat fee to make that movie or TV show. And then there's never any upside after that. Um, and it, right. And in fact, a, a lot of the production of what's happened in Hollywood has has gone over to what they call a cost plus model, um, which is you're literally the people who make the movie or TV show are paid the cost like plus 10 percent. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Almost like it's like a general it's like a, it's like building yeah, a house. A or something. It's like a, or a consultant, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly right, exactly, and so your your general contractor does not get the upside for when you sell the house later for more money, and in this in the same way, the people making movies or TV shows now don't get the upside if if it's a big hit on streaming, and then the streaming guys pre buy all the rights, and so they pre buy basically all the rights in perpetuity as part of the deal, so there's never any ancillary revenue, and of course people aren't buying DVDs anymore because everything's just on streaming, and so here's what's interesting, and here's the question for you, Ben, yeah. that I've been really fascinated by. So all through all of these changes, basically over the last seventy or eighty years, where sometimes movies and TVs movies and TV shows are great business. Sometimes they're bad businesses and sometimes, you know, they get repeated strikes and all these things. We're trying to figure this out. Like it's the same product, right? It's yeah. the, the, the format, the product format of a movie or TV show is unchanged from like 70 years ago. And so it's like all of the change, you know, the, the changes have been driven around technology, but all the changes are like in the microeconomics of the business and on the ability for different people in that market to extract greater or lesser levels of, you know, profit or profit sharing or participation right. or, or drive money. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, who gets the money seems like it's it, it's it's amazing how many shifts there have been for who gets the money relative to the fact that it's actually the same product. Yeah. And so it, it it raises a quite and then and then both uh, outsiders to the business as well as actually people on the inside of Hollywood, including people like the studio heads who, in theory, are you know have the most information on all this. They have had a very hard time predicting where this all goes. Right. Yeah. So a lot of these changes to the economics of the business have actually been very surprising to people. So so how do you like if you're a you know CEO in a business like this, like how do you think about the fact that the actual basic economics of the business might whip around dramatically, even with the product not changing? Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, in the uh, kind of Hollywood business, they actually saw the precursor, of course, in the music business. Um, right which went through, by the way, the music uh, format also hasn't changed since sheet music, right? There's a big change from sheet music to recorded music, just like there's a big change from plays to kind of uh, recorded, you know, uh, scripted entertainment. Um, but that's been the only kind of change. To the, that's been the key product change. Uh, you know, there have been subtle product changes, but essentially, you know, it's a movie or a song. I would say the big uh like thing that I think people didn't recognize on this last change, um, last distribution change that was different, you know, from a CEO perspective was that in all the prior ones, you still had in both music and in, in Hollywood, you had kind of this distribution scarcity thing that was very, very powerful and useful um, and, and made, by the way, the distributors incredibly powerful because there were only... 
only so many hours of broadcast television. Um, there's only so many hours on the radio uh, that you could get your song on. And that, you know, who controlled those hours was very, very important and then could create, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, kind of revenue. Once you went to this internet model of abundance and there is no scarcity of distribution, I think that change was not like the others. And so that's why people, I, I mean, in my view, that's why people got caught with their pants down. So yeah, look, when CDs came out and DVDs came out, it was all like, it's like those were the biggest boom times in those industries that they'd ever seen because they had all the money from before and then more money. Uh, and so everybody got paid every, you know, and that kind of trickled down to the artists who also kind of made more than they ever made before. And then you go to this streaming kind of internet-based distribution where, oh, guess what? Like, they, you can put as much stuff out there as you want and there is no kind of scarcity. And then the whole business model is different. And I think, I, I guess the thing that, you know, from a CEO perspective that was surprising to me about it, or like if I was CEO, I would have thought that I might have, thought about it differently, is you saw music go through this transition. And the essential thing that happened in music was the cost structure of the record companies just proved to be absurd given infinite distribution that anybody could get their hands on. And so what's happened in music is now I think over 70% of the artists that are the top streamers are independent. They're like outside of what you would call Hollywood in, in the music industry. And in the kind of Hollywood game, the big reaction was, you know, not to look at the cost structure at all, but just simply to basically create what the equivalent of a Spotify competitor. So I'm getting into that distribution business as opposed to I'm going to look at the content side of the business and make any changes. No changes were made to content at all. It was just like, I want a piece of the action on distribution because maybe that's where the money is. It's quite interesting. But I think it's, a, I, I do, th I agree with you. It's a very complicated thing to think about because your product is the same. It's like, I know how to make a great movie. So like, that's always going to be worth something. But, you know, what is it worth? And then how many of them are there is, is the other kind of relevant question. Yeah, so this, this takes us to then, this takes us into the AI topic in a very, I think, interesting way. Um, and, and let me introduce, um, uh, you know, our friend Larry Summer's favorite word here, which is fungibility. Yes. So fungibility is this fancy word that basically means like it's something easily substitutable or not, right? So, yeah. so like U.S. dollar bills are like perfectly fungible, right? If I have a U.S. dollar bill and I trade it with you for another one, like both they, yeah. they, they, they're exactly the same. You know, uh, a Rothko painting is not fungible, right? There's only one, right? right? Uh, and either I have it or you have it, and there's no substitute for it, right? Or an NFT. Or an NFT, exactly, right? Yeah, non -fungible. Literally non-fungible token. So, so, so there's always this question of anything involving like economic production, economic value. There's this product. There's this sort of question of fungibility. And a way to think about it is, you know, things that are perfectly fungible are, are kind of pure commodities, right? So dollar bills, mm -hmm. grains of rice, right? Um, uh, things that are non-substitutable, things for which there is no substitute. You either have the thing or you don't. Right, are like are like perfectly non-fungible. So a couple of things. So one is there's an interesting difference between the streaming music business and the streaming video business, which and I, I forget who said this, but somebody came up with this this idea years ago when the, these 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 companies like Netflix and Spotify were getting going, which is there's a big difference in the economics of Netflix and Spotify, driven as follows: um, the brand promise of Spotify um, is it's all the music, 
right? And yeah. so if Spotify doesn't have the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Frank Sinatra or Madonna or Lady Gaga, like that's a big problem. And, you know, Spotify's big challenge as a business was figuring out how to get rights to all the music. Although that may be a mistake. I'll come back to that. Yeah. Part of where I'm he headed on this. Right, exactly. So, so, so Netflix's brand promise this whole time has never been we have all the TV shows and movies, and they never have. The, the brand mm -hmm. promise is literally the way that they describe it, I think, is it's something like there's always something to watch. Which is why they put such a huge focus on the recommendation algorithm, because they're not like, and, and then look, sometimes people go to, to Netflix specifically because they want to watch Grey's Anatomy or something, you know, something non-fungible. But a lot of time you're getting recommended a show or a movie based on other things that you've liked. And you're like, okay, that's good. I'll click on that. And then, of course, content comes on and off of Netflix and the other streaming services all the time, you know, consistent with that. And so the user users, customers of, of Netflix have been trained to basically not complain or at least not complain too hard when they show up, you know, next Tuesday and, and some piece of content is, is, is gone. Cause there, there's just, there's more content. Um, you know, they'll, they'll just show you something else. And so maybe let's, let's, let's pause on that. Like, is, is that, is that dichotomy of you, you either have everything or you just have this, like, maybe there's something good. Is that dichotomy been in your view? Is that inherent to the difference between like video entertainment and music? Or is that, is that, is that actually somewhat arbitrary? I think it. I think it's turned out to be arbitrary. So I. I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, I, I remember uh, speaking to one of the uh, big streaming CEOs uh, on on the music side, and I believe over ninety eight percent of what's streamed has been released in the last eighteen months. So the whole catalog idea was probably wrong. Um, and then the other thing that happened, uh, interestingly, in music was kind of there was this company, SoundCloud, that didn't have the catalog, that kind of just had independent music that was doing very well. And then um, because people also uploaded catalog songs, they kind of got sued by the labels and became a catalog thing and the business died. But there was a like a real thing in there, which was you didn't actually need everything, um, you know, you Th that I think was a misperception uh, that just turned out to be really probably wrong in retrospect. It's hard to tell because you can't run the counterfactual, but um, <laughs> but but it is different. Like it's indifferent in practice. So like you know, as a matter of fact, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music all have the catalog today. So so that is what it is. Although that's changing because you know, as I said, seventy percent of what people want to listen to is independent artists. And nobody has the independent artist catalog. It just depends, you know, what they use United Masters or DistroKid or whatever to put on those services and which services they put them on. And there are, I think, like 38 or 40, like reasonably significant streaming services out there today. So is the theory basically on the first part of that, the new music part of it, is the theory that basically, and you know, on, on like in a parallel universe, right, on Earth 2, yeah. is there a, a version of Spotify that's actually a better business because they give you, they, they basically, their brand promise would be, we have all of the new music? I think so, because I think, that, look, the main people who listen to music and, and of course, streaming music, although I think most people do now, unless you're really old, um, are young people like I mean, like the music? Music has always been seventeen to twenty-five, or sixteen to twenty-five, or twelve to twenty-five years old, and and you always find. I mean, I find that if you run into a person who's not like super into music, and you ask them what they like to listen to, it's literally what they listened to when they were like eighteen years old, um, and you know, it's like, oh, I love Bruce Springsteen. I'm like, oh, okay, great, that's awesome, <laughs> you know. But but that's just you know, Bruce Springsteen is awesome. Well, it's no no problem with that. 
but the idea that you need a streaming service with like literally everything on it to listen to Bruce Springsteen, like the packaging was wrong. Like the segmentation in music streaming, I think went in a bad direction and never came back. So, so this then takes us to the AI topic and there's a, you know, there's a lot to talk about on the AI, you know, AI creating content, creating TV shows and movies and, and um, music and everything else. There's you know, a lot of details to this, but let's, let's start with one of the like really, really big questions, which relates directly to what we've been talking about, which is let's just assume for the moment that AI is going to be able to create music and movies and TV shows um, over time. Like one of the big questions that a lot of people have, um, well, it's actually usually, they usually express it as a statement, but it's like, okay, so, how creative is AI, right? And so there's there's sort of this thing where people kind of set this bar and they kind of say, well, you know, could could AI make The Godfather, right? Or, you know, could AI make The Sopranos? You know, in other words, like the really non-fungible content, like the real creative, you know, content, one of a kind, you know, Star Wars. Original, like brand new idea, not the 37th sequel or the next Marvel movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, like if I want to, it's a, it's a, here'd be a great example. If I want to watch a mob movie, right, there's like a thousand to pick from. And yeah. Netflix will recommend me a mob movie, and it'll probably be a pretty good movie about the mob. And I'm going to be pretty happy because I wanted to see a mob movie. If I want to see The Godfather, right? Like, I don't want to see, I don't want to see a knockoff, right? I don't want to see like the God nephew, right? Like, I want to see like the, <laughs> right? Like, the, I want to see, I want to see the real thing, right? So, so there's this division, right? Between you know, between or you know, another example would be I want to, I want to hear Lady Gaga's newest single versus I just want to hear some good dance music, right? Um, yeah. Right. Uh, so this is this division between fungible and non-fungible. So let's say hypothetically, let's say AI is actually not capable for the moment of making mm -hmm. the, the truly non-fungible content. So there's no AI Godfather, Star Wars, Lady Gaga coming out anytime soon. Right. Which is the, the current state of the art on AI writing and so forth. You'd probably put I would put in that category. Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable assumption, at least, at, let's say, at least for a while. Like, even AI right. optimists would probably say at least for a while. So, but let's say AI actually gets good at making the fungible stuff, right? So, it gets good at making, you know, sort of quote unquote generic mob movies. It gets good at making, mm -hmm. you know, you know, dance music and so forth. Like, does, do, will, is the consumer reaction to that going to be, okay, great, more fungible content? Um, and they're going to just start to basically listen and watch kind of indistinguishably between basically fungible content created by people and fungible, fungible content created by AI. Well, let's start there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a couple of things to that. I, th I think that it'll probably show up as a component first. There's a kind of certain uh, kind of genre of rap music where like, okay, there's a class of beats that are all very fungible. <laughs> like, you know, rap over the beat. And then the thing that is kind of non-fungible is the, are the lyrics themselves. And I think that's already starting to happen. Um, and my understanding is, you know, in China, it's actually like a pretty big phenomenon is like AI will be the track and then, it, but it won't be the lyrics. There, there's a part that was fungible anyway on the non-fungible uh, technology. And that just makes it easier to do. And I could imagine that happening very quickly in scripts as well. It's like, okay, there's the super stylized, like amazing dialogue here, the plot idea, this character development. And then there's a scene that's kind of an essential scene, but whatever the writer is tired and doesn't want to write, like it's a very simple dialogue. I went to a restaurant, the waitress asked me something, you know, what's the sorter for your food? It didn't feel like writing that and like have the AI write it. So I think that'll happen right away. In terms of like complete end-to-end -end AI content. So the thing to me that's interesting about that, like, you know, humans are obsessed with humans, absolutely fucking like totally obsessed with humans. So like 
a cheetah has been able to run faster than a human forever, but we only watch humans run against humans. We never watch cheetahs run. The AI can destroy humans in chess. We never watch AI play AI in chess. We only watch humans play humans in chess. And on and on and on and on. We're only interested in, like, they may be smarter, better, can write better, but like we're only interested in each other for whatever reason. So I think that's like a pretty fundamental thing. Like, I, I'm not sure, um, and it's hard to say, and, you know, can you tell? But like one of the things that you've observed, Mark, and that I think um, is very true is that the intelligence in AI is very exciting and interesting and so forth, but it's very different also. Like it doesn't quite work like a human, um, although it's good at, <laughs> you know, mirroring humans and this and that and the other. But like if it became like super original, uh, you know, what would that be? And I mean, it'll be interesting to see. So it all begs this question for me, and I, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I'll, let, me, let me push on it a little bit. Um, so it begs this question. It's the same question for me that came up around self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. um, the question around self-driving cars was, how do you evaluate them? Um, are, do you, does the self-driving car need to be perfect? Um, yeah. Or do, does it just need to be better than the average human driver? And so far, the answer has been depending if it's Elon or Google, right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And so, yeah. So, so basically Tesla and, and, and Waymo, is, these are great examples and these are very topical because, because Waymo finally just got, you know, approval to roll out, you know, full robotaxi service in San Francisco, you know, in 2023, which was a lot further yeah. down the road than a lot of people thought. Um, but the, the, the Google Waymo kind of philosophy this whole time has been something like it needs to be perfect. Yeah. Um, the Tesla philosophy this whole time has been, it just needs to be better than, than humans. And, and Tesla has, by the way, Tesla has a way of measuring that, which is, uh, accidents per, you know, per thousand miles driven. Basically they, they, when they first rolled out their self-driving capability, at least what, what I believe they said at the time was it's like twice as good. You know, there's like half as many accidents per thousand miles. Um, you know, uh, and then over time it's just gotten better and better and better. And like, yeah. you know, there are still accidents, but like it, it now, you know, I don't even know what the current numbers is, but it's something like five or 10 times fewer accidents per, you know, thousand miles. And so it's kind of vectoring towards something approximating perfect at some point in the future, but like <laughs> one day that wasn't the requirement to like take it yeah. to market. And so to me, like, I, I think the thing I would push on, you know, for you is like, okay, I'm watching a detective show. Like, you know, look, a lot of people, I'll just take detective shows as an example. Like a lot of people love detective shows. There are these long running franchise shows like law and order, right. Yeah. That have, you know, many spinoffs. Um, and you know, a lot of people, for a lot of people, they're like the, the term they use is like, it's like comfort food television, right. It's like an episode of law and order or CSI or something at the end of a long day is like a relaxing thing. It's like a little, you know, it's like a little Agatha Christie, little puzzle box thing. And it's, it's fun. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Your brain doesn't have to be fully on, you know, like you're watching Oppenheimer. Exactly. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 and, and, and part of why it is good, you know, and by the way, some other episodes are, you know, incredibly well-crafted and so forth, but like, generally speaking, there's a formula to it. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and they stick to the formula like pretty, pretty closely. The CBS broadcast television network was most success, you know, was the most successful broadcast network for a very long time because they lean the hardest into this philosophy, which is you just you basically have a formula for these kinds of what they call procedural shows. And so if an AI can write a law and order script, <laughs> right, that is yeah. basically fits into the formula. And if it, you know, let's say it, quote unquote, passes the Turing test, which is if I watch it, I can't tell if it's written by a human or written by the machine. Yeah. Like, does it still matter? Probably not. I mean, it's a little like, you know, Muzak or in, if you've ever been to Europe, you'll go to a like bar or restaurant and they'll have an Adele song, but it won't be Adele singing it. It'll just be somebody else so they can get around the licensing. Yeah. And like, it's fine. Like whatever you're in a restaurant, you know, you know the song, 
you don't know the singer. She can't sing as well as Adele, but you know, whatever. Um, so I do think there's probably a lane for that. It's uh, so, it'll, and it'll be, you know, like that's one of the craziest, hardest jobs are writing those things. Well, like soap operas, um, which is, I, I would say, maybe the ultimate comfort uh, entertainment. Um, you know, those writers are writing like whole hour episodes every day, right. uh, you know, <laughs> for a year. Like, so it's a great um, kind of exercise, but it's, you know, no, it's not like a pure creative endeavor. And and I think that those kinds of things, I could, I could certainly imagine being substituted if AI got good enough. Right. So then if you think about what it means to be a creative professional in this field, and by the way, I'm gonna, it's, it's yeah. going to sound here like we're picking on Hollywood, and, but the, the same question applies to many other areas. And by the well, way, the, programming the, is already programming. happening, right? Like it's already happened in programming, right? Oh, I, I need to write a JBDC driver, you know, to connect to salesforce.com. Right. Okay. A lot of that can be written by an AI that's been written before. Right. So this kind of, you know, I would propose here, you got to kind of turn the Turing test around and you got to kind of evaluate the, the, let's say the typical professional programmer, product manager, designer, Hollywood screenwriter, yeah. right? Um, by the way, Hollywood graphic artist, so forth, right? The people who have these jobs today is like, okay, how many of them are actually better than, you know, the, the AI that can just do kind of the, the basic thing? Like how, how yeah. many, prof you know, in, in other words, like there are many professional, if, 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 there are many professional screenwriters who would love to write another movie like The Godfather, you know, that at least they haven't been able to so far in their careers, you know, yeah. just like there are a lot of programmers who would like to write the next, you know, big breakthrough and haven't, haven't yet figured it out. But like, you know, look, they write, they write great material. It's just like, okay, at some point, if the AI gets good at the formula and if the, if from the audience standpoint, the material is indistinguishable, like what, what, <laughs> what becomes the bar at that point for the writer and we'll get to actors in a moment, but what becomes the bar for the writer to be able to continue to have a job, right? If there literally is the machine um, that can, uh, you know, that can sort of write the equivalent thing. Although this kind of can go back to the original conversation about, okay, now uh, we have infinite distribution. Right. Um, and so is then the answer become, well, every one of these writers who was the eighth writer on Young and the Restless is right. now a showrunner. Right. using a team of AIs and creating their own show. And even if that show has a small audience, they can get to that audience of a thousand viewers and maybe that's the job and maybe that's a better job. Right. And if they do something truly great, then it'll go much, much further. And so, you know, do you get to an independent Hollywood right. in the same way that you've got, you're getting to independent music and is the real answer that there's just way, way, way more content and it's content for literally everybody and nobody has to complain that there's not enough whatever you know six foot two jewish people in the movie or whatever the the, the complaint is because that's going to be out there because everybody is writing um and then you know maybe there won't be as many blockbuster kind of massive mega hits uh but there'll be something for everybody um so maybe it just changes the nature of the game but that's a really interesting question. It's hard to, I, I always hesitate to say, okay, this is gonna shrink or grow employment because it's always easy to see how it shrinks employment. It's very hard to you know, predict how it's gonna grow employment. Um, and this was true for com computers. Everybody could see all the typesetters were going away, right. but all the jobs that were created <laughs> um, was very, you know, like all the, like the, the graphics design jobs, the the product management jobs, <laughs> like all the jobs that you and I deal with, 
weren't jobs before computers. Like they're all new jobs. Um, right. But yet everybody knew every damn job that was going away as soon as the computer came out. It's like, oh my God, we don't have that anymore. And yeah. so I think that, you know, in the creative space that that may be similar. Yeah, and there's this history, <clears throat> there's this history here. So that my favorite example of this, um, you know, as you talked about the music industry earlier, but like, you know, typically the entertainment industry has fought every new technology. Even, even the VCR, the ones that were amazing for them, they, they yes. tried to kill the VCR so hard. So the, the, the VCR comes out and the, when the VCR comes out, people don't remember that what this was like at the time, but this is in the early 80s. And this is when the Japan was like ascendant in the like American imagination and the global economy. Right. They're the same way China is now. Um, and there was this like huge fear that like the Japanese had figured out a superior economic system and we're going to take over all of technology. And then Sony, which at the time, what, you know, a lot of people would have said was probably the, you know, kind of the best company in the world, um, the most innovative you know, company doing the most interesting things. Um, Sony came out with a VCR um, and um, <laughs> actually, ironically, yeah, it's the wrong format, but the, but the uh, there, there was that issue. But, uh, you know, they, they came out with that idea. And then a lot of other Japanese companies followed. Um, and that ultimately led, you know, led to VHS um, and, and, you know, things like Blockbuster. Um, but uh, when that first came out, to your point, like the, the reaction from Hollywood was total freak out um, because and, and basically it was it was the piracy argument. It was like, oh, my God, people are going to like record these things. And then like there go reruns there. You know, it's, it's the, the piracy is just going to kill us. Um, and so Jack Valenti, who ran the big uh, 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 producers guild, the MPA, uh, the um, yeah, the MPAA. Uh, at the time, and Jack, Jack Valenti was like this legend of Washington, D.C., where he had been like FDR's or sorry, LBJ's kind of main guy, policy guy. Um, and so he was like this legend in D.C. And so he, he goes to Capitol Hill and testifies and, and basically uh, advocating for a law to ban the VCR. Um, and his famous line was um, the, um, uh, the, the, the basically the, the basically the Japanese invention of the uh, uh, VCR uh, is to Hollywood uh, what the Boston Strangler is to the woman who's home alone. <laughs> that's a great line so the point is like look and, and again like this is not to pick on hollywood like you know the many many industries including the tech industry itself is kind of faced with these these questions but you do get these new technologies as you said they look like they're going to be destructive it often turns out that they actually massively expand the business like the vcr expanded uh, vcr i think doubled the size of hollywood right which which yeah. was already large to start with and, and that led to a cornucopia of money you know that, that flowed to everybody including you know the talent but also the the studios and in fact, right, it's the withdrawal essentially of that, that money, right, in the form of DVDs, you know, because VCR rentals turned into, or, you know, videotape rentals turned into DVD sales. Um, it's the withdrawal of that money that's prompted the current strike. So, the, the, you know, the same thing that they were scared of 30 years ago, right, turned out to be the thing that they, they, they're very sad that it's, it's, it's going away today. You know, to your point, like, I, and this is what I've been telling my friends, you know, like my, my, my Hollywood writer friends, is basically like, look, I think there's a really good chance here that AI is a giant expansion. Um, of the entertainment industry. And I think you, you gave the, the perfect case study and I'll, I'll just, I'll describe it in my words, which is if you're a talented screenwriter, right, within some number of years here, short, I think relatively short number of years, you're going to have a tool on your laptop, right? That basically is, is like you, you work with it. You, you, you basically write your script, you know, kind of with, with the AI. And then as you're writing your script, the AI is actually generating the show or the movie. Right. And yeah. so it's literally like rendering the thing. It's doing the voices. It's putting in the actors. It's like, you know, it's doing the scenes. It's like literally generating everything. And, you know, in, in the same way that people who make music today have tools on the laptops where, the, you know, where, where, where they do this, like that's what's going to happen. And so everybody with writing talent, everybody with creative talent um, is, is going to be able to actually make movies on their laptops. Um, yep. do, 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 would you agree with that? Yeah, I think really good movies. So th yep. I think that's right. It kind of... It, 
It's an interesting thing. The most likely is it's going to shift the economic power from the distributors and the kind of the studios to the creatives um, in, a, in a really major way that probably hasn't happened, you know, since the kind of rise of CAA and the kind of uh, the, the bargaining power that they created with uh, packaging and these kinds of things. Um, that's probably the most likely. It's interesting because the Hollywood structure is kind of based on you know, kind of a distribution monopoly that was deemed a monopoly, which kind of <laughs> separated the movie theaters from the studios. Um, and then the reaction to that, the natural reaction to that was the unions, the Screen Actors Guild and whatnot, because you're dealing with a monopoly, an oligopoly. Um, it's the only way you can get kind of a square deal. And all of those things um, kind of get undermined, changed, flipped around um, by a technology that makes or two technologies, one infinite distribution available to anybody basically free of charge. And then secondly, um, the dramatic drop in the cost of production. Um, and so if you put those two things together, um, I think it does kind of start to look much more like where the music industry is today, because that's basically what's happened in music. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got this interesting kind of balance of power thing um, on the creative side. And I'll come back to the studios in a second. But this interesting balance of power thing on the creative side, and let me let me describe how, how I mean it. So let's assume this is the world we're moving into, where anybody who wants to is going to have a tool on their laptop for making an, an entire movie. So in tech world, you know, we, we described a, a few minutes ago how, you know, there's basically these jobs like programmer and designer and product manager who come together to build a tech product. And you can yeah. kind of think about them as analogous a little bit to like screenwriter, actor, director, right, for making a movie. Right. Yep. It's like a it's like a, tri a triangle, you know, kind of, uh, you know, combination in tech world. <laughs> the, the running joke is basically that the programmers now all think they don't need designers or product managers because they yep. think the, the AI can do those jobs. The designers now think they don't need programmers or product managers and the product managers don't yep. think they need programmers or designers. Yep. Right. Because each and of maybe them, they're all right. And, and maybe. <laughs> right. Exactly. And by the way, they all think they no longer need a CEO. Right. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, they, so also possibly correct <laughs> or, or a venture capitalist. Yes. Um, so so if you extend that kind of question into the Hollywood you know, kind of thing, and if you think again about the, the triangle format, it's like, OK, if you're a screenwriter, do you actually need actors and directors anymore? Can the AI do that? By the way, if you're a director, do you actually need the screenwriters? Because if the, if the AI yeah. can write the thing. And so maybe the director makes a movie on his laptop and the AI writes the script. By the way, if you're an actor, right, maybe you think you're the essential element, right? Because to your point, like people are drawn to people and like it's, you know, it's a movie yeah. featuring me and that's the draw. And now I have an AI that can actually do the writing and the directing, right? And I yeah. just show and I show up and, and I show up and do, and, do, and do the acting. And so there's this interesting kind of three-way kind of standoff question, right, of, 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 of ultimately where that lands. And, and by the way, again, you know, to your point, like, it's possible the answer is all of the above, right? It's, it's yeah. possible that all of a sudden, each of those points of the triangle are going to have actual total creative freedom whenever they want it, because they're going to be able to have AI partners to do those other jobs. That, that, that's certainly a real possibility. I, I just kind of, again, emphasize how unpredictable this all is in that I think in... Um, you know, before automation, like if you go back all the way before automation entirely in, say, the 1700s, um, almost all the jobs, like well over 90% of the jobs were agriculture, and none of the jobs that we have today existed. And so, you know, I think that if you were a farmer in those days, you could not possibly imagine if you automated farming, right. what the hell anybody would do. Like, if you have food, like is everybody building houses at that point? Is that the only other thing? Because those were the only things. 
And so I think that, you know, in the, in the creative space, I think it's such a big space that the exact things, yeah, you may not need a key grip or a best boy or, <laughs> or whatever those things are. I still don't know what those jobs actually are. There, there will be other opportunities, you know, hopefully much more interesting jobs. I think there's, uh, you know, there, there couldn't be, you know, a less interesting job than plowing a field. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I, I'm very optimistic in that sense. So, so that takes us to another scenario, and, and it, this is a, it goes back to a point you raised earlier, which is basically people like, you know, basically people have a high affinity for seeing and, and dealing with other people. So there's another possibility, which is that there's going to be this complementarity effect um, where purely human-created entertainment is all of a sudden going to be at a premium. Yeah. And let me, let me just, and this is very paradoxical because this sounds like the opposite of everything that we've been saying, but let me describe what I mean. So let's, let's start from history. So when, when, when cars arrived, like horses no longer were the main form of transportation on a daily basis and the horse population, you know, shrunk a lot, yeah. but ho horses became a luxury good, right? Uh, um, where, still are. And still are, right? Yeah. The, the, the richest, rich, many rich people and their kids are like super into horses. Another example of that is in, 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 in clothing, like the best suit right? Or the best pair of leather shoes is not from a machine. It's from a craftsperson working in a village in Italy somewhere, building it the way that they're making it the way they made it 500 years ago, right? The yep. most, ex the most expensive men's shoes are purely handmade, right? And, yes. and, and, and they are, they are the most expensive because they're purely handmade. They're purely handmade because they are the more expensive. Like that's an integral part of the thing. In fact, right. There's this thing in men is, I don't know if it's the same is true in women's fashion. There's this thing in men's fashion where you actually, the, the, the way that you know that something is actually superior, right. And costs more is that it actually has like irregular stitching because it's yeah. evidence that it was actually stitched by, by a person. And so you get these things. And by the way, your music, right. You could say a similar thing, which is like recorded if recorded music basically is, is a, is a less good form of economics for a lot of performers than it used to be, you know, the, the, the concert, you know, like people love going to concerts, right. Oh, yeah. but concert economics dwarf the streaming economics. Um, even, even for a massive streamer like Taylor Swift, you know, her tour, I think she was doing like, I'm trying to remember the number, but just, just in merchandise, she was doing like a million and a half dollars a show. Right. Um, and then, you know, you've got tickets and all that kind of thing on top of that and all the knock-on effects. Right. So yes, yeah, right. Like that is already in the music industry. I think like touring is is way, way premium to the recording. Yeah. And so you mentioned like the, the you know, the, the other jobs, like, you know, best way and key grip, like, it, you know, which is sort of literally the people who like yeah. physically construct stages, right. Um, and, yes. you know, and, and sets for, uh, you know, for, for, for movies that, that aren't made in CGI. It may be that there is this basically much more pure form of the art um, mm -hmm. where basically the promise of it actually is, no, this is actually all people. Like th this yeah. has actually been crafted for you. And there's actually a blockbuster version of this, which is uh, uh, Christopher Nolan movies. Um, where Christopher Nolan makes this huge point when he makes movies of having, and he, he famously for, well, for Oppenheimer was actually a case of this. He said there are no, I forget what he said. I think he said there's no CGI in Oppenheimer. I don't know. They, they might've done some background work, but he said basically everything you see. Even for blowing up the nuke? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So that all of the, all of the explosions, all of the um, yeah. physical, you know, all of the, the all the cut scenes that he had with all of those like amazing, you know, kind of physical, you know, geometric patterns yeah. and, you know, all those sort of fires and everything like that was all practical, like that was all real. And so it may be that there's this thing on the other side. Right. And, 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 you know, maybe it's a bigger part of the business or smaller. I don't know, but it may be that I, or I, I say, I'm quite positive. This will be a thing on the other side. I don't know how big it will be, but I'm quite positive. It will be a thing, which is no, I'm watching a movie that's actually made the way people made movies in 1970, not the way people do it with machines. And like, I don't have to wonder as I'm sitting there, like, okay, is this real? Is this not real? Like, cause the realness is kind of inherent uh, to it. 
Yeah. And so I, I think there's this other side of it where that, that I, and I think that's going to become, I think ironically, like there's a good chance that becomes the premium part of the business. Like it, it, it may be that those become the expensive movies um, and the, the stuff made by computer becomes the inexpensive movies. That seems very correct to me. I mean, I think that, you know, AI being able to fill in the, the robotic jobs very quickly um, will be, you know, cause like you can't build a better robot than a robot. Uh, and a human can't be a better robot than a robot, but for everything else, I, it does feel like even ultimately that's where it will land. Good. Well, I feel like we beat, we beat, this was question number one. <laughs> I feel like we've. All right. I got a two part question for you from Tom. What is the absolute worst case, most dystopian scenario for Hollywood once AI becomes the norm? And what is the best case, most futuristic scenario? Okay. Um, I hope everybody's ready for this one. This is, um, we'll start, we'll start. We'll start I don't know with, if I am. <laughs> we'll, start, we'll start with the dark side. Um, okay. So here, here's the dark side. So the idea of create creation, the idea of, you know, creating narratives and stories and music, um, right. in art forms, television, you know, movies, um, novels, poems, you know, they, like typically when we talk about them, we talk about them in, you know, the creative realm, the literary realm, uh, you know, the audiovisual realm. You know, we talk about how entertaining they are and how inspiring they are, or how depressing they are, or how horrifying yeah. they are, whatever. They're funny. Um, and, you know, we talk about them at kind of this level of, of the way that we, we experience them kind of consciously. Um, but, but there is another level and it's 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 the level of, of, of uh, physiology. Uh, it's the level of biology. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the level of neurochemistry, right? And so the, 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 you know, there's, there, you know, our, 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 our mind, we have a conscious experience that we describe, you know, with, with words like, you know, emotions, but then there's this, there's this neurochemical biological component, right. To how we operate, um, you know, where, when we experience a sensation like happiness or fear or, um, you know, anger or, you know, laughter, you know, humor, whatever, like it's, there, there, there are biochemical processes happening. Like there are, there are hormones flowing and there are electrical impulses moving through the brain and there, and there are areas of the brain that get specifically triggered. Right. So the right. amygdala, right. for example, gets triggered for, uh, you know, for emotion processing. And, and then there's, you know, other areas that get triggered for things like stress and, and, you know, fight or flight and so forth. Right. Uh, and, and, and in fact, and so basically, like if you view it like from a mechanistic standpoint, like what any entertainment experience is physiologically is it's basically taking the brain and the nervous system on a roller coaster ride. Yeah. Right. Um, and, 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 and so if you think about like the narrative structure of the classic, you know, the hero's journey or the three act structure of a movie or something like that, like, like basically right. there, there's this, there's this pat there are these narrative patterns or, or, or you're composing a piece of music, right? There are these narrative patterns of like building tension, releasing tension, you know, building anger, you know, catharsis, and then, you know, humor. Formula. And, you know, yeah, there's there are formulas, and the, the formulas aren't just aren't just intellectual or creative formulas. Mm -hmm. They're also literally like biophysical formulas. The same thing is true of music. Like music draws out emotions and feelings in us because at the biological level, like it's it's triggering these kind of you know these kind of neural right. rea neural reactions. And so, so you know if you if you talk to people or you read the research on people who have studied this, like you know we we kind of know how this works, but most creative professionals I've talked to are not specifically thinking in terms of optimizing for like the biochemical experience. <laughs> about like literally programming. <laughs> Our chemicals exactly whereas the machines like an ai would actually find that to be you know a relatively straightforward thing to do right and it, it would not be emotional about it and it wouldn't view right of course if there's anything wrong with doing this it, it seems if it makes the humans happy you know then then it's the right thing to do and so yeah. 
you could imagine AI algorithms for creating screenplays and songs that basically are essentially programming human neurochemical biology. And, and then the dystopian version of this is in, in the optimal possible state, right? So like right. basically the AI gets so good at creating entertainment um, that basically programs our biology so perfectly that it's like from a physical standpoint, the idealized perfect version. Uh, yeah. of an entertainment experience, but yet it has basically been, you know, sort of stripped of all higher aspirations. Um, yeah. But, but it would be like, you know, I don't know. It's like, it'd be like the entertainment equivalent of like eating Cheetos or something. It's like, it's like the ultimate engineered, amazing, fantastic, you know, food. <laughs> yeah, Nothing is more delicious than a Cheeto. Exactly. But yet, like, do you really want to live in, you know, and Cheetos are fine yeah. for a treat, but like, do you really want to live in a world in which every, everybody's only eating Cheetos all the time? Yeah, actually, that's an interesting question as it gets into that idea with originality, right? Where, you know, you don't actually get the same feeling from watching a movie the 177th time as you do the first time. And kind of watching the same formula in a movie for the 177th time, I wonder, you know, it does make you wonder, like, does the sameness start to get you of the pattern? So here's the 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 dark. Here's the argument why actually. So so if you watch the same movie 177 times, like yeah, at some point you've seen it before, you kind of see all the yeah. twists and turns coming. Like it's not, you know, some movies are fun to rewatch, but like you you kind of know what's happening, right? So the, the the dark version of this is what you just described, though already happens. Um, and um, you know, for for you know for decades, Hollywood screenwriters have known that you structure screenplays in what's called a three act format, right? And so it's yeah. it's basically it's a consistent format. It's basically introduction, and then it's basically problem, and then it's basically resolution, right? Um, and mm -hmm. it, it's actually interesting it's like philosophically it actually maps to well, right called. right it's the double turn right like yeah it's the first first you get into the problem and then the the second big twist right 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 right, right. Yeah, and so right. It, screenwriting it, it, books i'll talk about this yeah so in philosophical terms this is what it was called the dialectic um and so the dialectic is, is in, in philosophy the dialectic is, is thesis right you, you propose an argument there's an antithesis which is you propose a counter-argument and then there's synthesis which is the res resolution of the two and a, a, yeah. a three-act movie structure kind of you know basically works the same way you set up the situation you create tension in the situation then you resolve the situation but it actually turns out that hollywood has actually advanced to a more detailed understanding of this in the last 20 years and right. there's this book that has had a big impact on the entertainment industry called save the cat and it's a book on how to write screenplays and in save the cat what he does is he goes through like 80 years of movies and he basically discovers that there's a basically in addition to within the three-act format there's actually a 15-point template uh, that basically that, that like a very large percentage of the great movies follow yeah. um and, and so each of the he, he breaks each of the three acts into five kind of points uh, I think he calls the beats, right? And then, and then basically, yeah. as a consequence, there's this 15-point basically bullet list that you can just Google and look up, and it's really interesting. And it's like, and, and it turns out it's this, it's the same format of plot um, that is used for like you know action movies, uh, adventure movies, horror movies, romantic comedies. <laughs> They're all the same. They're, it turns out they're all the same. Um, uh, and then there's actually another twist on, on Turn the Cat. The same guy who unfortunately passed away. He wrote, he wrote these books and then passed away. It's one of these kind of amazing, tragic stories. But uh, he wrote a later book where I think he got it too. I forget what it was. It was like he, he broke the, each of the – he broke it was something like he broke the 15 points down into each three subpoints. And so he got it to like 45 yeah. very specific points. And at least in theory, you can write you – know, and look, you, you write a screenplay with this – what he calls the beat sheet you know, against mm -hmm. these like 15 points. You're not – you're not, of course, guaranteed to write a successful movie. You're not even guaranteed to write a good movie, but you're writing a movie that takes the viewer on the emotional roller coaster that we have come to accept. And then it is shocking how many existing movies basically follow that 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 template. And so again, it's it's sort of this glimpse of the, like, there's something primal 
to the experience yeah. that's not just what we think we're perceiving. There's something deeper that's happening. Um, this also gets into Jungian, you know, so-called Jungian psychology, which is this idea of archetypes, which I probably shouldn't go into at length. But you know, basically, this idea that there are these basically there are these universal stories, right? And, and they're 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 not just intellectual or creative exercises. They're they're there's something very fundamental to the human experience and the human kind of physical being. Right. They always work. Yeah. That these things wire into exactly. Well, the the hero's journey. So the classic example of that is what's called the hero's journey. Uh, so the hero's journey was a, a Jungian concept basically derived from, you know, like ancient Greek, like, you know, the epics and myths. And then this guy, Joseph Campbell, kind of popularized it. And then like famously, like Star Wars was literally templated off of the hero's journey. So the, the Luke Skywalker story is is the hero's journey. And yeah. then Harry Potter, by the way, same thing. It's It's the hero's journey. It follows the exact same arc. And so a lot of screenwriters who sit down to write a movie, you know, in kind of that mold, right, um, you know, could, could basically use the hero's journey, Jungian archetype uh, method uh, to do that. And so we, we kind of we know a lot of this already. We kind of use it a little. George Lucas uses it a little bit and so forth. But like it isn't we're not program, you know, <laughs> the process by which entertainment programs the emotional state of a human being right now involves yeah. a lot of like human creativity and like, you know, like a, a, a layer of indirection. The machines may just go straight yeah. to the biology. <laughs> straight yeah, to the straight biology. To the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, 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 uh, that's interesting. I think Pharrell experimented with, actually did an exercise, I believe, where he used um, the actual kind of state-of-the-art technology, technological reading of the biology and uh, wrote the song Happy, uh, which is a massive hit. Uh, but I, I don't know that he's, he's either attempted to or, or successfully repeated that kind of level of success with it. But, and um, what was it about that song? Like what specifically? Um, well, I think that he programmed into or he was attempting to program into like a very specific emotion um, in terms of the music and so forth. The song is amazing that way. <laughs> it works like perfectly. So uh, perhaps he succeeded. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask yeah. you, you know, you talk to a lot more musicians than I do. Um, mm -hmm. When they, you know, because songs take people on an emotional roller coaster, right? And they, yeah. you know, very specifically, like, you know, they use different, you know, chord progress, you know, famously, like in a lot of music, they use different chord, prog chord progressions to get you to yeah. different emotional states. And the great musicians that you know, like how, how consciously do they think about like the listener's emotional roller coaster, let's call it? Oh, they're very focused on, I would say, expressing a feeling at the highest level of intensity possible. So I think that, you know, if you're a, a musical artist, you want, you're really going for a feeling, you know, much more so. Like, like if you're writing a book, you sometimes go for a feeling. You're sometimes going for like an idea or convincing somebody at a logic or it. But like in music, I think at least the, the, the truly great musicians can make you feel a certain way and you know like sometimes with an almost like a novel feeling um that you you like wow i never felt this way before and so i think that and of course there's whole genres designed around like the blues was designed around like a very specific feeling uh so i think that's a big part of it our friend vinod kosla i think had a tweet that got him in a lot of trouble where he said like you know there won't be any more uh, human musicians because the AI would just program whatever feeling, however you want to feel, they just program it for you. Um, so he kind of got right to this idea. Uh, I think he probably regrets tweeting that. Um, but, you know, there, there was a point to it. 
you know, there's this candidate. I just had an experience like this with music. This is kind of a funny story, but um, there's this candidate running for president of Ecuador right now, who's a former French Foreign Legion sniper, special oh, forces yeah. guy, um, yeah. and um, he has been uh, taking a helicopter, combat helicopter, into um, campaign stops, and he plays the theme music for Top Gun through the loudspeakers. <laughs> yeah, that's certain feeling. <laughs> And I hadn't listened to the. I mean, I, I you know I've yeah. seen the Top Gun movies, but I hadn't listened to the music in a long time. So I went on YouTube yeah. and I pulled it up. And if you haven't heard it recently, like the theme music from Top Gun, like yeah. the, the hair in the back, at least in my case, the hair in the back of my neck goes straight up, right? And I can literally feel like the emotion coming out, right? And it's just yeah. it's like all yeah, the yeah. you know it's all the patriot it's all the patriotism, mm-hmm. and then it's linked to you know when you saw the movie in your childhood, and like it, yeah. like all this like it, like it's like you're it's like a it's a physical rush, like it's really something. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny. <laughs> so, side note, <laughs> um, when Top Gun came out, I, like, for whatever reason, I was probably 18 years old, and I had uh, lunch with Oliver Stone, who was absolutely furious <laughs> about that movie <laughs> because he's like, it's so powerful, and it's get, going to get people to sign up for the fucking military like I did. He signed up for the military and they're going to be like rudely awakened. It's nothing like Top Gun. And then he made Platoon, <laughs> right? Which is like the opposite of Top. The Gun. opposite of Top Gun. Yeah, because yeah. he he actually it's an interesting story. So Oliver Stone he fought in Vietnam, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what Platoon is about. It's basically history. He's Charlie Sheen. He is the Charlie Sheen character. Right. So so he knew, and he had a particular view coming out of that. Um, and then we we know people. You and I know people who actually did sign up for the military due to Top Gun, right? I won't name names, but I think we, one of the yes. person who works, yeah, works yeah, with us yes, 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 yes. No, became, a, became a, I think, an aviator, right, as a consequence, a marine aviator as yeah. a consequence of that movie, right? Um, yeah. And so, like, that, you know, that... that I mean, he, <laughs> Powerful! <laughs> Stone was right, right? Yeah, 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 no, he was right. I mean, well, like, and I think this is, gets into, like, a little bit of, the inter- of an interesting aspect of AI is um, humans are programmable through words, through music, through stories, um, like, clearly programmable. And, uh, you know, that's what a lot of politics is about and so forth. And so now you have potentially, and this is where a lot of, I think, the pushback on social media has come from. It's like, wow, here's this big new tool for programming all the humans. Um, And, you know, if you apply, like, the next layer of technology to it. So, yeah, and by the way, just to close one loop um, for people who are interested in this topic. So this concept, this book called Save the Cat is a, is a very good book. But also um, one of the things you can do with like GPT-4, you know, with like ChatGPT or with um, whatever, uh, you know, Bing, Bing Chat or whatever, um, you can actually use it. it. It will write you screenplays today. And, and what you can do, you can just tell it, write me a screenplay about, you know, the Vietnam War and it will do that. And it will, you know, it'll, it'll start by just giving you like a generic, you know, probably Vietnam War story. Uh, in a generic screenplay format, but you can you can also specifically say, write me a screenplay in the f- using the format of Save the Cat. Of course, it knows what Save the Cat is, and it knows what the what the what the what, the, what that framework and structure are. Um, and so, it will literally write you a properly constructed narrative, fifteen point you know Save the Cat narrative on whatever topic you want. Um, yeah. And so, it, it actually like has the capability to do what we're describing, like for screenplays. Like it actually has that capability. Now, you know, this raises a lot of the issues that are, you know, kind of the, the, the coming up in the strike and so forth about whether you know that should be allowed and who gets credit and whatever. But like technically, practically, like it can actually do this. Um, yeah. And so, anyway, yeah. it's it's a fun thing if you want to uh, if you want to play screenwriter at night. Um, it actually gets to be pretty interesting <laughs> in what it's capable of doing. Welcome back after a uh, month long coffee break. Mark and I are back to uh, continue the show. Um, and, uh, so in the intervening coffee break, the writer strike ended 
So congratulations to uh, everybody in Hollywood on both sides. Uh, amazing that people get to go back to work uh, doing what they love to do. So that's nothing but good news. Um, so uh, when we left off last, uh, Mark, if you might continue on the utopian scenario, uh, which is the scenario we all love about how AI is going to change Hollywood. Yeah, so the utopian scenario is that basically AI is an enabling technology for a level of creativity um, and also a level of output. So I would say both uh, quality and quantity, uh, but a level of creativity and output uh, from, you know, entertainment professionals, creative professionals, you know, just like light years beyond, um, you know, what's been possible so far. And by the way, look, like the history of Hollywood is actually the history of new technologies making new 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 forms of, of art possible, right? So, you know, going back originally to just like the, you know, the introduction of, uh, of, of cam you know, at cameras, like movie cameras, all yeah. of a sudden you could film stage plays and then that became, you know, modern cinematography and, um, and, um, and, and filmmaking. Um, and then, you know, look, effect yeah, and, and movies and plays are certainly better than plays, you know, although yeah. many people didn't like the idea of movies, but. Well, plays are still, yeah, I mean, look, plays are still a thing. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, plays are more popular than ever, um, you know, in, 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 at least in, in some places. But, um, you know, look, you know, movies really movies, number one, just made plays available to a lot more people. But then also, you know, movies, you know, film, film, there's things not possible on film, obviously, that are, are just not possible in a, on, a, on a stage. Um, and so, you know, look, the history of Hollywood is actually a, it's actually a pretty utopian story. You know, it's, it's, and it's funny, it doesn't feel that way because like each new wave of technology has been greeted by lots of anxiety uh, and, and, and sometimes sometimes anger or rage. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, it's all paid off uh, and not just economically, but it's paid off in terms of its creative potential. Um, and so, look, the, the utopian thing here is just like just start start like this, which is like, what if you took the best filmmakers in the world, the best directors, the best writers, the best best actors, and you just gave them a set of tools that all of a sudden let them project themselves creatively, you know, to 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 a whole new level. And so, you know, and I'm sure this is already happening. I mean, like whether people say, admit to it or not, you know, if you're if you're writing a screen, you know, if you're going back to work as a writer and you're writing a screenplay right now, like you're almost certainly going to be in a in an iterative loop with a you know with a chatbot, um, you know, as you you know for, for as you uh, work on your your screenplay. You know, if only to do research, you know, and then maybe brainstorming. And, and look, I actually think like search uh, search engines, like Google had a had a uh, had a had an impact on on actually the quality of screenplays, which is you know like it's it's a lot easier to write a screenplay that has like a lot of factual grounding in the real world, you know, set in some industry or around some technology or something, right? Because you can just get access to all the information on Google or on Wikipedia, and so. So ChatGPT and these systems are, are another big step up like that. You know, look if you're a, you know, if you're a, if you're a, um, you know, if, if you're a, a, you know, if you're a director, all of a sudden you can start to do render, you can start to do storyboarding, um, you know, in a much more accelerated way. Um, you know, look if you're an actor, you know, quite frankly, you can start to, you know, take control of your own material uh, better, and you can maybe start to, uh, you know, do renderings of yourself. You can start to, you know, do shorts, you know, yourself. You can start to, you know, make easier. Maybe if you want to work on a screenplay, it makes it easier to work on screenplays. So, so take the take take the best creative professionals in the field and give them kind of these superpowers. And the the question I always want to ask is like, okay, if you gave these tools to Steven Spielberg and like really unleashed him, you know, could he make you know twice as many movies? You know, five times, ten times. Um, you know, would they be twice as good, five, five times as good, you know, like all of our great filmmakers are gated by literally like hours in the day, right? Like they're, you know, yeah. a, a Martin Scorsese is only going to make so many movies in his life. Um, and if he could make right. movies twice as fast, um, you know, he could make twice as many. So like the utopian scenario here is like, this is a toolkit for the creative community that is going to make things possible that we're at a level of quality and quantity that were just never even conceivable before. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things along those 
lines that I've been thinking about is that, you know, some of the movies and TV shows that we love the most are the ones that create these amazingly intricate worlds like Game of Thrones or Star Wars or (laughs) pick a uh, Christopher Nolan movie. Um, And nothing would help that more than AI and that it would kind of help you create kind of a richer and richer and deeper experience, which would uh, certainly enhance the viewing experience, particularly if you like to watch things four or five times. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always been this challenge. One of the little fun facts of, uh, of Star Wars, which I find very entertaining is um, uh, George Lucas, apparently the way the story goes is uh, I heard the story uh, from people kind of close, close to the situation as they say, it may be public, but, but, but I've heard it, um, which basically is um, the, the idea that Luke and Leia were sisters was like not in the original screenplay. Oh, wow. Right. Um, and there, there's the famous, I don't know if you remember, there's a famous kiss. There's a point where Luke and Leia kiss. Um, yeah. And if you watch it today, you're like, wow, he's kissing his sister. Like at the time, apparently that was filled. Like they, George Lucas hadn't, didn't know yet that they were like brother and sister. And apparently, <laughs> and apparently yeah. there was a cue in the original score. There was a, uh, John Williams originally uh, composed a Luke and Leia love theme uh, <laughs> for, for the musical score. And then apparently also that he didn't, he hadn't decided yet that Darth Vader was going to be Luke's father. And so they, they, they kind of, they kind of backed into that, right? Um, anyway, point well, being, the, the, the Darth Vader as his father is even kind of more remarkable that he didn't know that because it's kind of the uh, this classic narrative arc of um, you know kind of not wanting to be your father and then being your father and all that kind of thing confronting well, your father. Well, if you remember it exactly, but if you remember at the beginning of Star Wars, another thing that reads differently now that you know that is that in the beginning of Star Wars, remember they, the you know, the Empire captures Leia. And then Darth Vader tortures Leia. Yeah, which he probably went to if that was his daughter. He's torturing his own daughter, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, so there's these things. And, and anyway, what's the point of it? It's like, look, like George Lucas, if you read like the making of Star Wars, like George Lucas put an enormous amount of time and attention into developing the script and the, the dialogue. And if you go back and reconstruct like how hard he worked on Star Wars and how you know incredible it was when it came out and so forth, like, you know, that was a creative exercise to the end. Well, yeah, actually, so I do have a story on that from uh, his, his wife, uh, Melody Hobson, which is apparently every character in there, there's an entire like book that he's written on them <laughs> that that's in his, uh, in his office. So he has just like books and books and books on like, even the most minor characters are massively developed. And so what you have there is you have a, you know, a top tier creative professional operating at the outer limits of just standalone human ability, right? Like one, one yeah. man's ability to create and then keep everything organized. Um, and yeah. even with that, you know, Luke's kissing his sister and it's like, oops. Right. Uh, and so, <laughs> right. So anyway, to, to your point, you know, you give a world builder a set of tools that let them track all this and elaborate on all this and brainstorm on all this. And exactly yeah. to your point, uh, you know, the, the, the worlds that they should be able to build should be like light years beyond what's been possible now, just simply because you're giving the best creators much more extensive intellectual scaffolding um, and, and augmentation that just that, that, yeah. that, they, that they've never had. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that as a writer myself, if I had had the ability to ask the system about my own book, that would have been very useful, you, you know, cause you do, it's hard to remember every single thing that you've written and how it all fits together and, and what might contradict, you know, each other. And, and, you know, whether or not you reconcile those things is very interesting. It's interesting. He, he didn't quite reconcile the fact that, um, you know, Darth Vader was his father with Darth Vader torturing Princess Leia. <laughs> exactly. Well, let me give you another, another, another use case, another, another thing that might work. So um, another benefit. So, you know, brainstorming. So everybody's like, well, you know, we don't want, 
you know, you don't want, you, may, you know, you don't want maybe, you know, chat GPT writing, you know, writing the script itself, you know, whatever. But uh, one of my, you know, one of my favorite, one of the best, obviously, shows ever made. And one of my favorites is Mad Men. Um, and yeah, one of the things, right. And one of the things that single made Mad writer. Men. Really- That's a single writer show, isn't it? Well, he had a writer's, so it's one of those shows where he had room. a writer's room, but, you yeah. know, it, he probably ended up writing the scripts himself, like at the end yeah. of it, um, or re- rewriting them all, because it had such a sort of consistent, you know, vision with, with such a- Yeah, a very story. meticulous feel, yeah. But one of the things that he talks about, one, so one of the things that really jumped out for Mad Men is like how many, like uh, how many times the viewer expectations were subverted. Like one, one of the things that made the show really special was you never actually quite knew what would happen. And they right. kept like surprising yeah. you with all these different angles you hadn't thought of. And I read an interview with Matt, Matt Weiner, who, who who ran it one time, and he said the rule in the if I recall this correctly, he said the rule in the Mad Men Mad, Mad Men writing room was whenever the question was what happens next, um, what they would do is they would write down the five the, the first five ideas for the next thing in the plot hmm. um, on a board, and then they would cross them all off, <laughs> and then they would and then they would come up with something, right? Ah. And so as a result, all of the obvious idea, it never did the obvious thing, right? It was always subverting yeah. your expectations. It was always forcing the writers to go out on the edge, right? Into, into, into a creative realm that they would not have otherwise gotten to. Right. Um, and so like, and, and so like the level of discipline and effort required to like write five throwaway ideas, you know, which yeah. by the way, might also be very good ideas, but to like construct five like ideas that might qualify for a, you know, top tier Hollywood screenplay and then throw them out to get to the sixth one, like, you know, that's serious work. Um, yeah, but like, that's a tremendous amount of work. And yeah. clearly work that uh, most writers do not put in <laughs> currently. Right, exactly, right, exactly. But like all of a sudden, which ChatGPT will happily do that for you, Yeah. right? So it's right, like, right. you know, give me- Create many scenarios. And by the way, would be very good at creating the most obvious scenarios. Right, exactly. And then you just basically have ChatGPT list those out and then you just strike all those out, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's a level of- um, Oh, I'll give you one more, one more. I no, that's a very interesting thing. If ChatGPT can write it, you know, without you prompting it not to write something obvious, then you shouldn't use it. Exactly. Right. You should yeah. set, right, exactly. You should set a higher bar for yourself. Yeah. Right. Um, I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more use case uh, that I use as a writer. Like, and I, and I think it's just it, like writer's block, right? So writers always have mm-hmm. writer's block. If you read all like the books on writer's block, it's always like they have all these things because it's like anxiety about getting started, right? And so they're like a lot of conventional yeah. advice for getting past writer's block is you always stop writing at a point where you know the next two sentences, right? So you're always able to pick up, pick up and run with it, but people have a hard time holding to that. Because it's you know it's frustrating to walk away when you're in the middle of flow. But like a way a way to like use ChatGPT to circumvent writer's block is just literally like okay, have it just like give you brainstorm, have it brainstorm in the first five minutes of the new session. You know, give, yeah. give me you know give me twenty ideas on how to start from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know it's funny because as an editor, I mean you know we we do this at at work often where you know somebody will be writing an idea or a presentation or whatever. I always find. At some point, it's actually very good creative input for me to just go like, don't do it that way. Like, let me rewrite the narrative. Right. And and I imagine AI would be really, really good at that. Yep, exactly. So yeah. very good. So look, I, I think this is like, a, you know, this is like a Swiss, you know, this, you know, these systems and all the, all the, all the variations that are coming up, uh, you know, the, the capabilities that are going to become available over the next few years, including, you know, rendering video, you know, we're, we're going to get to the point now where like, for example, an actor, an actor is going to be able to do a scan of their face and body, and they're going to be able to insert it into a 3D environment. And they're going to be able to have, you know, the machine write a script and animate a movie, you know, starring themselves, you know, they're, they're going to be able to do, you know, even if it's an actor who doesn't have any writing abilities or director abilities, like they'll be able to feature mm-hmm. themselves as an actor, 
you know, yeah. basically in like in, in, in sort of projects to demonstrate what they can do. You know, directors are going to be able to, you know, composite, you know, movie. You're going to be able to pre-render an entire movie ahead of time uh, on your laptop so that by the time mm-hmm. you show up and you're pitching the studio and trying to raise the money to film the real thing, like you literally already have a version of it that's like already made. Uh, right, 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 yeah. Right. And so the, the, these tools are going to be like so, po- this is the thing I think people are going to miss. I think these tools are going to be so powerful in the hands of the people who are the best at what they do. Right. Yeah. And then on top of that, these tools are also going to be profoundly good at making the people who are only okay or people who are only inexperienced, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. who haven't yet done the full thing yet. And and, and then and they're going to make also all those people potentially much better. And and so, you know, to, to for example, to get you up the experience curve much faster, like yep. film students, as an example, film students are going to be operating at the atomic unit of making their own movies in film school mm-hmm. all the way through, you know, full two hour productions, right, including visual effects and everything else in a way that's just, that just has not been practical up until now. Um, and yeah. they're going to be able to really demonstrate what they can do. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting concept because I think we, we've kind of traversed that in music to a large degree in that, you know, if you go back to kind of classical music and orchestras, you needed like a whole set of virtuosos to, um, you, you know, to, to compose a piece or to, to kind of render the piece completely. And then, you know, over years, with kind of simpler ideas and um, electronic tools and these kinds of things, so many more people have been able to enter the creative game than could have ever like written an orchestra. Like there's just no like chance um, that you could even assemble the people. Like you'd have to get to the status of where you could orchestrate the thing and then bring in like a genius violinist and, and, you know, whatever timpani and, and all these things. So that's a, you know, it certainly opens the aperture for creativity quite a bit. Yeah, there's this very entertaining uh, genre of music on YouTube uh, called Epic. Um, and it's people who literally just on their laptops are using the current production tools. Um, and they're doing kind of the inspiration for Epic music is it's like uh, the music in movie trailers. Like, so it's the movie. It's, ah, the, yeah. it's like, like the super that, cinematic like, visual type sounds. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But like, there's people on YouTube that have like three, four, five hour like epic, you know, kind of things playing out, giant battles, like all the all this stuff. And it's yeah. it's it's like literally a person on a laptop. But the to your point, the music tools are so good already that you yeah. can do a full orchestra and a full choir. <laughs> Amazing. Right, completely synthetically in a way that sounds you know absolutely spectacular. Right, uh, yeah. you know, like if, you know, it, had Beethoven had that tool. Right. Yeah. You know what, you know, what could he have done? Right. Um, right. Uh, or, you know, or all the, all the, all the people who wanted to be, who wanted to be Beethoven. Yeah. He certainly would have made a lot more songs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. no yeah. About that. yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Actually, if you're, if you're into classical music, it's amazing to watch. It's amazing to like look at a manuscript of like how those guys compose because, you know, they're composing for like a giant orchestra or something. And it's yeah. like, you know, did, you know, did, did they ever, you know, in, the, in those days, did they ever even really hear a top flight performance of their own compositions? Like, did they ever actually get, you right. know, like how many orchestral, you know, how many, how many people in the era of like Beethoven and, and, uh, and Brahms and so forth actually ever got their works performed by like the Berlin Philharmonic. Yeah. Right. And so like a lot of those guys never actually heard their compositions played in a proper way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it's the same thing here, right? It's just, you know, most, most people, uh, you know, most, you know, mo- look, most, look, oh, look, most people who write a Hollywood screenplay never see it produced. Yeah. 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 They never Absolutely. see it on screen. Right. And now all of a sudden, like all of those screenplays could be produced. Right. Uh, and yeah. turned into, you know, not, maybe not a movie that's commercially viable, but a but a version of it where you could actually sit and watch it uh, as opposed to just reading it and, and then have that be fuel for the creative process. Yeah. Well, actually, it reminds me of that. There's this great scene in um, the Quincy Jones documentary 
where uh, Frank Sinatra is talking about Quincy Jones. And he says, you know, that I knew he was like the greatest I'd work with because I gave him like this sheet music and said, you know, the arrangement is, you know, it's too light here. I need it to be different here and so forth. And he just literally took out another piece of paper, rearranged the thing in front of me and handed it back. He said, he's the only guy who could do that. And so, right. So the only way Frank Sinatra could get the song he wanted was to like work with one guy in the history of music who could do that thing. Um, but as the tools progressed, I don't think anybody, you know, takes a piece of sheet music and rearranges it anymore. You know, there, there are easier ways to do it. Uh, and that kind of opens up a lot of possibilities. Yep, exactly. So, so anyway, so to, to wrap a bow on this, like, yeah, just like, creative fuel um you know a, 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 you know what i like to call augmentation like an augmentation to the creative capabilities including and maybe especially the creative capabilities of the very best creators right and then giving them a level of superpower and, and giving them a level of expressiveness and giving them you know not just the, you know, an upgrade to the quality of the work that they do but to the speed with which they can do it um i think i think is, is probably greatly underestimated right now yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. I, you know, it's one of those things when you do something a certain way, you don't realize how difficult it is. Um, and then you, go, you, you get a new tool and everything changes. And look, there's always positives and negatives. Like a necessarily slow process has some things to it. You know, having written on a typewriter, you know, written by hand, written on a typewriter with whiteout, written on a word processor. Like they're all different processes. So you do get some benefits, but generally... The better tool is the better tool. Well, and and I, I would just say, it was almost nobody ever goes back, right? Nobody goes. Well, there there are like a few people, a like with few. a manual. A few people won't even use like an electric typewriter, right? They they've got some crazy manual thing, but that's more like a personal psychological issue, I think. Right. But almost nobody. Like I said, it's it, the exceptions are so rare that you actually know who they are. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. It, it's kind of a thing. It's a character in a movie who does that, probably more than an actual real person. Moving on, uh, we have a question from, <laughs> I don't think this is real name, Adult, <laughs> A-D-O-L-T. Um, and Adult asks, what do you think is the biggest argument for, quote, saving Hollywood? And I could start with that, or you, would you like to start? Why don't you start? I, I haven't, go ahead. Yeah, start. I, I would say it's one of the great assets of the United States. So if you love America, um, you should probably love Hollywood in the sense that, you know, it's been the vehicle that we've had for exporting our culture, our values, our way of life. Um, and if you like those things, you know, if you live here and, and you like those things, that's an amazing kind of uh, an amazing industry and, you know, amazingly uh, positive for the country. You know, it's kind of a weird question in that sense, at least to me, in that uh, you kind of, you know, as a country, why wouldn't you want to be a cultural force if you liked uh, the country that you lived in? And, um, you know, it kind of gets to this question of, uh, you know, okay, what culture do you amplify? And obviously, you know, Hollywood won't amplify every aspect of America or maybe not all the points you love and maybe amplify some of the things you don't like, but, you know, net, net. It's, you know, this is who we are and, uh, you know, having the, the greatest creatives in the world um, right here with us telling our story is pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, we both have friends. Um, we both have friends who grew up behind the Iron Curtain uh, during the Cold War. Uh, maybe you, yeah. I think, I know you have some stories in particular, but like the... Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> what, what was it? Let me. What was what was the what was the impact of American entertainment um, when, when with respect to the with respect specifically to the Cold War with the Soviet Union? Yes. Well, let me let me give you one example. So my friend uh, Christian Gheorghe grew up in um, in uh, communist Romania under Ceausescu, uh, and uh, the. <laughs> Basically, you know, that environment was so repressive um, that, uh, you know, they would do things like they'd come in to your house at one o'clock in the morning uh, to check your power meter and look for like if you had any like albums or, you know, videos or anything imported from the U.S. And, uh, you know, it's just like communism. I think people don't (laughs) people have this communist fantasy. We kind of covered this a little on the last podcast, but like communist reality, if you ever want to know what communism is really like, just talk to somebody who lived in it. Um, and one of my favorite stories he has is they, you know, they wanted to get a, um, a color television set, you know, long after color TVs uh, came out and they went to this place called the Department of the Betterment of the People, uh, which decided whether you would get a color TV. And they basically lectured him for three hours why you can have one. But Anyhow, uh, the thing that changed his life and um, actually caused him to escape was uh, he was bootlegging. Um, he was bootlegging albums and films, uh, and one of the albums he listened to was Pink Floyd's "The Wall," and then one of the films he saw was Rain Man. And the thing that I remember about uh, Rain Man that he said is, you know, the, the Las Vegas scene just blew his mind that there was something like that because uh, you know, one of the things in communist countries that you uh, experience is everything is gray. They they don't like even the clothes, they, they don't come out with colorful clothes, because why? Like, you know, there, there's no reason to, there's no economic thing to do anything that looks good or this or that or the other. There, there's like literally creativity is completely suppressed. You know, even, even in the, the kind of most basic fashion ideas like colors, uh, which also, also goes back to the Medici time when uh, <laughs> the, the communists of those times outlawed color, like just flat out outlawed it. Uh, but you know, when he saw the Vegas scene, it was just so spectacular and everybody in communist Romania was saying, well, that was fake. They just created a fake city for the movie that there's no way that place really exists. It was just so unbelievable. And, you know, somehow he got to the conclusion that no, Las Vegas did exist and that was a real place. Um, and he, he actually escaped, uh, escaped Romania by swimming across the Danube river. Um, which is just like a, what a crazy, unbelievable story that was. Um, but but his now his knowledge of what was on the other side of the river was from quite literally Hollywood. From Hollywood, yeah, yeah, no Hollywood. Hollywood kind of I, I would say gave him a new life, a free life, um, which right. you know he he would never have had at the same time in the same way. And then, you know, you could say, look, that's all in the past, but you could also take a different, you could also broaden this argument out and you could say, look, like every culture, including ours, like has some level of repression going on, right? Like, you know, yeah. we, we, we live in our time. There is certainly a, a long yeah. list of things that you uh, both uh, have to say that you don't believe and things that you believe yeah. that you can't say. We have, we have our own kind of repression. My, my, my Chinese friends, you know, because it's, you know, it's always, you know, today it's like the equivalent of the USSR. People talk about is, you know, communist China and there's all these things you can't say. And my Chinese friends always are excited to point out all the things that I can't say, despite the fact <laughs> that apparently I, I, I allegedly live in a free society. Yeah, um, you can say them, just not out loud. 
<laughs> exactly. You want to make sure the door is closed, the window shades are drawn. And so, um, and, and, you know, look, this is always the case. Like every society has some set, you know, there's some set of rules, like there's some set of, you know, kind of assumptions, rules, there's some enforcement, you know, for the norms. And then there's, there's the role, you know, it's, it's the role of the jester, right? Like, you know, in, in, the, in the medieval era, it was the role of the court jester. Uh, and yeah. the court jester, the role of the court jester, you know, was in two parts. One was to entertain the court, but the other was the court jester was the person who could say things that nobody else could say. And oh, you could right, kind of, right. right. And you could kind of, you could kind of couch it as like, you know, he's a jester, so he's joking. Right. But it's like, yeah. you know, he's joking. Ha ha. Yeah, not really. Not really. <laughs> right. And so, you know, culture, subversion of cultural norms, right. For, by the way, for better or for worse, but like subversion of cultural norms, you know, basically happens through entertainment. Right. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it, it happens through people who are able to like paint pictures of realities that like don't actually exist and are able to tell stories that aren't like literally true like that, that you, you basically, you, you, culture is basically encode, you know, basically all of their, all of their new messages and all their counter arguments to the status quo, you know, kind of in, yeah. in these stories. And so if you, if you, if you don't have that process, um, then, you know, it's, it would be very easy to fall into a process of cultural stagnation um, and repression. Um, and if you do have that process, you know, the, the culture necessarily will stay, will stay vital and, and, and interesting. I mean, you know, look, I say like Dave Chappelle, you know, would maybe be yeah, like, no, you know, I was say, today's court jesters are the ones who are freeing us from some of these, uh, repressive forces. Right. One of the things you and I, I know you've been to more shows than I have, but you and I uh, went to a Dave Chappelle show, uh, years ago and the, you know, in addition to like, he's just like super funny. And so you just find yourself like laughing uncontrollably you know, because he's so funny. But the other thing that I always find so fascinating about him or, I'm sure Chris Rock's shows are like this too, is like, they'll say that, you know, they'll say things that you're not supposed to say. Um, right. Uh, and then the feeling in the audience is like this overwhelming group relief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like, wow, right. great. You said it. <laughs> well, it's like lancing a boil or something, right? It's like, yeah. Oh my God, finally. You see, I always enjoy this when uh, you see the concert videos of, of some of these things, which is the, the you know, like when Chappelle does his, his specials, it'll pan to the, he'll say something, he'll say something that normal people are not allowed to say, uh, <laughs> regular people are not allowed to say. And then yeah. the, they'll pan to the, the, the audience and the audience, the look on the audience face will just be like naked relief. It'll just be like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Right. And, and, and everybody's laughing and everybody knows what, what he said is true. And everybody thinks that, you know, thinks that it's amazing that he said it. Yeah. And everybody's laughing because it was funny. And it's this whole package. Of, it's like a it's like a giant release valve. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, anyway. it is amazing. Right. Right. He He's freeing everybody's mind. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's that's what the great that's what the great movies do. That's what great music does. That's what great comedy does. Like yeah. that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, like that, that is a very, very, very big contribution to the evolution of our, of our, of, of our societies. And I, I think we would really miss it if we didn't have it. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, Hollywood is, Hollywood is freedom. That's why we need, we need to say, but although I, I, I think it'll be okay. Um, then uh, moving on. So Fabius Maximus <laughs> um, asking, and, and this is actually interesting uh, question because I think it's it's actually kind of a, a misunderstanding, but I'm going to read it as you wrote it or she wrote it. Um, how will the job losses in Hollywood due to AI compared to, with, to those in other industries during previous waves of automation? 
Good news. Um, so <laughs> yeah, the question's not true. Yeah, yeah. So the good the good news is the question is actually yeah the question is is it's a it's a very obvious question and obviously a very valid question. But um, the good news is we have three hundred years of history on this. Now we have three hundred years of basically increased levels of industrialization, autom automation, computerization, um, and you know there are more jobs in the world today at higher wages than ever before. So you know this this goes to the sort of classic. It's what economists call the lump of labor fallacy, which basically is this idea that the, the argument goes that, you know, there's basically only a fixed amount of work to be done in the world. And if a machine does some of it or if an AI does some of it, then there's less for people to do and it'll cause job loss. It actually turns out that's not what happens. And that's not what happens because of the economic principle of elasticity, um, which is the process that's, quote unquote, causing job loss or let's say causing changes in jobs um, is also bringing prices down and increasing production levels. Um, and then it turns out that that basically increases the, the size of the economy, that increases the size of that industry. Uh, look, another way to put this, the industries that have higher levels of automation also, also grow faster, um, yeah. right? Because they're, they're able to accelerate their process of building more products at cheaper prices and, and therefore you know, selling more um, and therefore being bigger industries and employing more people. Uh, than, the, than the industries that have less less technology, and so th this this goes right back to the so anyway so that that's the general argument that that automation doesn't doesn't create job loss and AI won't create job loss, in fact quite the opposite um, the net uh, job creation will be way up. You know this goes back to where we started on the you know on the on the utopian thing, which is just like look like it, you know what if all of a sudden you know the great creator can make five times as many movies, or what if all of a sudden every movie gets twice as good. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, all these different scenarios you can paint. And, and the result of that will be a massive expansion of the industry. Right. A big right? increase in demand. Sure. Exactly. Right. You, in, you induce demand, like increased supply induces demand. Um, and so, you know, we and you look, they're, they're, all the creative fields are like this. Like, does anybody ever complain that there's too much great music? Right. Like, no. Like, <laughs> you know, mostly the opposite. Mostly the opposite, right? Like there isn't enough. There should be like a lot more great music. There should be a lot more great movies. There should be a lot more great. There should be a lot more great everything, um, right? And there's you know these the and these these this 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 industry of all industries. I mean it's you know it's the, the market is the entire world. You know the market is five to eight billion people. Um, yeah. You know with like you know with with enormous spending power and with enormous time. You know that and you know enormous love for 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 these forms of media. Um, and so the, the, the result of this, and, and again, this is the same kind of, you know, this is the thing that an industry has to go through and people have anxiety about it and so forth. But like on the other side of this kind of change, typically what happens is a much larger, uh, uh, uh industry with like way more, uh, employment, way more output. And I, and I, and I, I'm a hundred percent convinced that's what's going to happen uh, for sure in the tech industry and for sure in, in, in the, in the entertainment industry. Yeah, you, you know, that's so interesting you bring that up because I recently went back and watched the AFI 100, which is the, I think it's American Film Institute, top best 100 movies of all times. And two things struck me. One was the fact that they could put that list together and that it would be like a reasonable shot at it was just amazing because there aren't that many movies. And then the other thing that struck me is like some of the movies I really didn't like. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's just me. I'm like, uh, got some, you know, brain defect or something, but I, and then there were definitely movies off the list that I liked much better than movies on the list, but it's, it's just, the, it does speak to the fact that, you know, there aren't, there should be more great movies. There definitely should, you know, given the given the talent of humanity. But the the bar to make a movie is so high, um, and requires you know so much money and and, and so much coordination, uh, and and lawyers, <laughs> um, that that it is quite difficult. Now you um, know, look, having said that, you know, to kind of give the devil his due, like, look, the, the jobs will change. 
Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the analogy, like if I were going to like steel man, you know, against my own argument, the analogy here would be like, you know, look, the blacksmith, you know, the blacksmith industry never recovered after the introduction of the car. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know, look, there are still horses. Right? <laughs> Making horses is not what it once was. But making horseshoes is not what it once was. And there were blacksmiths yeah. who had perfectly good jobs making horseshoes who all of a sudden when cars came along, like they didn't adapt. And if you were still trying to make horseshoes 10 years after the car came along, like you were probably in trouble. Um, yep. Now, what happened was the car created far more jobs, right, than it, than it displaced. And so, for example, the number of car mechanics was orders of magnitude beyond the number of, of, of blacksmiths. Right. Yeah. Um, and then and then, you know, then, and then the downstream effect of the car was like very profound and that the car led to the creation of industries. The car led to movie theaters. Um, the car led to, uh, you know, ch uh, retail chains. It led to malls. It led to suburbs. It led to you know hotels. It led to amusement parks. Right. Fast led food. To, you know, what's fast food? Exactly. It led to, you know, all kinds of economic growth and job creation that were, would not have been possible if we were still riding horses. And so it, it is a great case study of like the net aggregate job creation from the car was like profound over the alternate world in which people had stuck uh, to, uh, to to horses. But look, having said that, there were there were blacksmiths who ended up stranded on the wrong side of that. Um, and so. Um, and, and, and look, it's just like a part of, you know, and then you, you kind of want to you know, play this back in history. It's like, okay, what, you know, what should we have done? What should society have done about the sort of disappearing blacksmith jobs? Right. And, you know, from a societal standpoint, the last thing on earth you would have wanted to do is to slow down the progression of the introduction of the car to protect the blacksmith jobs. Like that would yeah. have made everybody worse off, right. To protect a very small, what ultimately turned out to be a small number of blacksmith jobs. But look, at the same time, you did have blacksmiths who couldn't, couldn't adapt. And so there, there does need to be some consideration for the fact, you know, that, that it is a change and then there, there needs to be, you know, there need to be paths for people to be able to, uh, you know, to be, to be able to adapt. And, and, you know, a lot of the blacksmiths and the blacksmiths children, right. Have to have a path to be able to get onto the, onto the, onto the side of the new technology. Yep. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Okay, Simon Bonanno, <laughs> these names are all interesting, um, although this may be a real name. How do you see AI plus blockchain redefining IP royalties for Hollywood creators? Yeah. So Ben, why don't you start with this? Because I know you've thought a lot about this. Yeah, so I think, look, and I'll go to like a simple, like the simpler version of Hollywood, I think is the is the music kind of side of Hollywood. Um, which is, uh, you know, royalties in the music industry have been just a huge um, complexity, way money has been stolen, <laughs> other kinds of things in that, you know, if you make a song, um, there are generally many, many people involved in that song. And they, you know, from writers to producers to um, other singers and, you know, people, and they all, you know, particularly in today's world when we don't really have, it's not like the Beatles, um, you know, the, most people are individual uh, kind of artists that, that have a collection of people that work with them on something. And those things are all recorded on a contract and stuck in a drawer somewhere, like it is really not managed, um, even in a database that other people can access, like, i.e. the people who contributed to the song. And so what ends up happening is the money kind of comes in to like the label or, or like whoever the entity is, and then you're relying on them to kind of distribute the money back out to you. And I'll just tell you, a lot of money gets lost. My brother who's in the music industry has done, um, you know, literally hundreds of audits on behalf of his uh, artists and never has he not retrieved money that was being like held kind of 
whatever intentionally or unintentionally, you know, against the actual agreement in the contract. Uh, so there's that part of it. But then there's a second part of it, which actually shrinks the industry quite a bit, which is, let's say that you're the NBA and you want to then license that song. Um, all of the people who have to sign off on that, or like if you're Ben Horowitz and you're writing a book with a rap lyric in it, uh, getting approval to pay for that lyric that you can put in your chapter um, is a heck of a process. It's very, very difficult. And so it just slows down. Um, it creates tremendous friction in the ability for artists to make more money off their work because, you know, if you could sell it easily, uh, it would be better. If those of you have ever been to Europe, you'll notice that the the, the music is like songs you know, but not by the people who you know singing them. Why is that? It's because, you know, it's too hard to license it. And so that's more like money that gets lost from the artist uh, that they could have, but this, this kind of system is bad. So what a blockchain um, would do in particular, I think for the royalties is you could just have these contracts be open, published on the blockchain, have the money come into a smart contract and then get sent out to all the participants automatically, no third party involved. It's just, you know, the, the agreement is enforced by the game theoretics and, and mathematical properties of the blockchain and not subject to, you know, bureaucrats, lawyers, um, you know, record companies needing to make like a profit in the quarter, like none of those things come into play. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's a very kind of powerful tool in that sense. You know, look, I, I think AI, you know, on top of that basically makes all those solutions much easier to build um, because it is a tremendous enhancer on like creating code and these kinds of things. And so I think that, uh, um, you know, those would go hand in hand. And I, like, I, I imagine Hollywood is very similar. Uh, there's a, you know, a huge kind of conflict in the, in the recent strike was just about, okay, what are the, like, there are no royalty payments anymore. <laughs> like where'd they go? And, uh, you know, kind of having a construct that could do royalty payments would enable, you know, potentially other distribution ideas. Yeah. Could you describe for people who haven't heard it, just describe what Grimes is doing? Um, yeah. So, so my understanding of it is, uh, she is, um, basically licensing. So if you want to do AI Grimes, <laughs> um, which is, uh, you know, basically, um, train an AI on Grimes's uh, voice and then make your own Grimes song. She'll auto license that to you. Um, and she'll do that, you know, using blockchain, and then she will uh, basically split the profits. Um, and I think it's a 50-50 split, if I recall. But so basically, that's a kind of very innovative way to say, hey, um, you know, rather than run from AI, let me just say, like, you can use it, just acknowledge the fact that you, the idea of my voice and my style like I invented that. So pay me for that. You don't have to pay me for the song you wrote. You can get the money for that. And the, I, I think, you know, like one of the really exciting things about that is if you're a musical artist, you know, in that way, AI actually immortalizes you. You become an instrument um, and not just like a, <laughs> a singer at one point in time, you become an instrument that people can use, you know, 
you become a violin or a, or you know or a saxophone. Uh, so you know that, that that that's actually a super exciting idea. Um, and yeah, kudos to her for, for and that's all registered through a block. That's all a block. That's all registered through a blockchain based system. The way you're describing, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 the advantage of that is you can use it right like as a creative without having to call a lawyer or you know. Um, do a contract or negotiate terms or whatever the terms are all published uh and you know you can opt in or or not um but uh you know it's as simple as you know as as getting a violin <laughs> you know like there it is you buy this instrument it's grimes and this could run i mean the the, the system that does this could run for a thousand years right um and it could just it's always a 50 50 split and new people could yeah yeah right 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 she could right. you know in her on her deathbed she could uh, read to direct it to somebody she likes um right. Right. And, and all that kind of thing so right yeah yeah, yeah. it's a, it's quite an amazing um uh, amazing possibility when you when you think about all the things you might do with that so I, I have this scenario I just can't get out of my head, um, which is, so, so first of all, like, I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a pop music, like all the music I like is the people are all dead, but um, uh, I'm not like a, it, uh, up to speed on pop music and don't try to be, but um, you know, everybody always talk, talks about how smart she is. And I just, I never quite knew what that meant. And then she came out with this thing and I was just like completely blown away. Like it's one of the most innovative things I've seen anybody do uh, yeah. inside tech. And so I was like, okay, like, she, yeah, yes, she in fact is a genius. This is amazing. Um, yeah, she, she but, went right to the strong form of the idea. Right, yeah, like percent over all the, <laughs> we see like entrepreneurs running around with like, you know, weak forms, half baked or not half baked, but like half right. measured. And she right. went right to the full thing. Like, this is what it ought to be. And then my understanding is that part of the way she was able to do this was she owns, she like had, she does her, all of her own stuff, right? She publishes her own music. She, she has yeah. her own, she doesn't like work. She doesn't go through a label. Uh, right, right, right. Well, she owns her masters. She owns her masters, that. right? Yeah. So she's she's retained a lot of uh, legal autonomy, you know, which is yeah. kind of do you know again doing things the hard way, um, you know, for for a new musician. But like she she she's pulled it off. So so I have this I have this kind of fantasy uh, I don't know utopian dystopian scenario in my head, which is, um, you know, basically if she's able to do this because she owns all of her own rights, and then the existing you know music labels or whatever they just like drag their feet and they don't like embrace this fast mm -hmm. enough. Um, yeah. you know, there, there will be like archeologists in a thousand years, right. Who will look back over the sweep of the next, you know, millennium. And they'll be like, why was there only one musician? Yeah. Right. Like, why was there only one singer? Right. Because what will happen is the, the, the number of variations of her that will exist in perpetuity expressed through this technology track through this and enabled through this system, there will be thousands and then millions of grime songs. Um, yeah. And they will just make up the overwhelming majority of like the entire recording catalog. And a hundred years from now, it's just like, they'll, they'll just be like the most advanced music will all be like grime's music. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, and it'll just like swamp the whole thing. And so it'll be like, you know, in a thousand years from now, it's like, they'll find some reference to, you know, Frank Sinatra. They'll be like, well, who was that? We've never even heard of him. Cause like all the music we listen to is like grime's. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, maybe this is maybe I'm carrying that too far. But, you, know, you are, but I think it's illustrative of of the power of the concept. But to make the point, like, look, like if the, if the, if the world is gonna if, if the world's gonna evolve in this direction, like it's gonna really matter who like picks up the flag and runs with it uh, versus yeah. who doesn't. And and this, at least to me, this feels like the, it feels like she fired the starting gun on a process that's gonna play out over a long period of time. Um, well, I think and, it also gets to the kind of value of independence, right? Like this is the. Um, the, the interesting thing about the creative industry that's very different than the tech industry is like when we invest in a company, we get 
a piece of the value of the company. When somebody invests in an artist or a movie, they also get like these intellectual property rights, which is a kind of a different, the nature of it is different, right? Like, so it's like, okay, I get you, I get your name and likeness. I buy that in exchange for advancing you money to make a record, um, which is really kind of in some ways, and that by the way, that advance is recoupable. Um, so it's a debt slash equity instrument, um, but I don't just get the equity, I get you. Uh, and uh, so, so it's a very, it's a construct that like, I think AI causes you as an artist to really rethink and say, okay, my independence now is far more valuable because what I create can then be remixed and in order for me to get an interest in that remix and that recreate and that, you know, further use, I actually have to be independent. So Titus Tetchers says, <laughs> does AI mean artists who don't want to follow the suicidal Hollywood conformism on everything from COVID to woke get a chance? <laughs> that, by the way, that comment in that commentary is not one of the podcast hosts. It is one of the... Uh, audience members. We are not uh, taking responsibility for Titus teachers, Tetris. But we're excited that he was able to express himself through the medium of, 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 of asking questions. I mean, look, like this ought to be, if it goes back to a little bit of extending what you've been talking about, but like, look, it, th th this ought to mean that tools will now be in the hands, for example, some people who want to make movies, like it should now be possible to make the equivalent of Hollywood quality movies on a fraction of the budget. Right. Yeah. So just just take the economics like it, it ought to be possible here within a couple of years, um, you know, to make entire full length movies, you know, basically on your laptop, completely produced, you know, with like whatever actors superimposed into the thing. Like I, like uh, a couple of years, uh, I don't know, I'd say probably five years out that starts to tractable. By the way, there's a there's a movie people like this kind of thing. There's a movie I watched a little while ago. Um, it's uh, I think I, I believe the title of the movie is Monsters of Men. Um, and uh, it's this movie that the special effects guy shot um to prove a point um and he shot it uh like in the jungles of vietnam or something and it's like a, it's like our killer robot like monster movie yeah. like a predator you know kind of movie but with robots um it's with lots of like violence and action scenes um uh and killer robots stomping around um and gunfights and so forth um he shot it uh i think it has if i remember properly it has 2000 vfx shots and, and by the way, they're really good. Like you basically like it's it's like it's basically it's at least it's the very least TV caliber, if not full Hollywood caliber. But it's like really good. It's like, you know, killer robots stomping around the jungle. It looks great. And the guy who did it is a, is a VFX pro. So it looks great. Mm -hmm. But he shot the entire thing. It has 2000 shots. And I think the total budget of the entire movie was two million dollars. Wow. Right. And so it was sort of a demonstration of like what one person with a computer can actually do these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like, I don't think we're that far out from a tool set that's going to, as I said, like a tool set that's going to let any film student basically have a movie, you know, that's sort of a Hollywood caliber, you know, um, you know, at least from a production value standpoint, you know, kind of thing by the time they, they, they leave film school. Um, you know, it's just sort of a basic thing that they can do on their laptop. I think, I think the technology on that's going to actually evolve very, very quickly here. Now, you know, look, what the, what the Hollywood people will say, the, the counter argument from the Hollywood people will say, well, what will happen is the audience expectations will go up, right? Um, and yeah. so all of a sudden, it won't be good enough to have a $300 million, you know, blockbuster the way you have today. Instead, it's going to have to be a billion dollar blockbuster, and it's going to have to be like super spectacular and all this and that. It's like, I, you know, I don't know. Like, you know, there have been many... 
Yeah. It seems I, like that can be a both, though, right? Because, yeah. um, well, remember, the beginning of the Internet, one of the very first um, shows on the Internet was South Park. Um, yes, right. Which is, by the way, still running today. Uh, and that thing continues to be the lowest budget animation possible uh, with uh, them doing all the voices themselves. <laughs> uh, so you couldn't do it any cheaper. And they never actually amped it up, you know, in the entire time they're doing the show. So so I, I think the low end and the high end are both always interesting. So there's actually, a, this gives you, they, they did a little, so here's, here's what, so they did this thing. So the original South Park, the original South Park was literally, it was cardboard. Like it was literally animation. It was like, it was like layers, layers of cardboard. Yeah. Um, and so they, they, they did move a few, a few seasons in, they did move to CGI because they needed a, oh, they needed okay. a, because they wanted to be able to do the episodes quickly. They wanted to be able to do them because a lot of the great things about South Park is they can do an episode that addresses something that happened that week. Um, yeah. And, right, 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 right. So the, the topicality of it has been really critical over the years. And so they did move to computerized production process. But what they did was they did 3D computer graphics modeling of cardboard. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> because what they had to do, I actually heard this from one of the one of, one of the guys directly. So what, what they did, because what they did was their their audience was used to seeing layered cardboard, right? That was the aesthetic of 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 the thing. And so, and it actually turns out if you just do like animated version of that without the layering of the cardboard, it looks differently and it doesn't look it doesn't look real. And yeah. so they actually did 3D modeling of what it's like to actually have layers of cardboard. <laughs> and so to this day if you watch it if you like zoom yeah. in you, you don't notice this as you're watching it but if like if yeah. you really look carefully they'll have like the layering and the shadows like are still yeah. in there as if it's actually being produced a cardboard and so yeah look that 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 aesthetic worked and stuck um and i mean look a lot of the this is the argument i always have with a lot of my friends in hollywood actually is like look a lot of the breakthrough movies that redefine hollywood were made on a shoestring budget right so easy rider yeah. Uh, which sort of inaugurated what they called New Hollywood in the 1970s. Like that was made for basically no money, you know, Dennis Hopper. And then there was like Reservoir Dogs, which kicked off the yeah. indie boom of the of the 90s. And that was, you know, Quentin Tarantino. Ba basically the whole thing was shot in a warehouse, right? And you, you think you saw all kinds of stuff that happened in Reservoir Dogs, a bank robbery and yeah. all these things. And like none of it actually, you, you never actually see any of it. Um, yeah. uh, you just see that the sort of aftermath of it, which, 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 which kept the budget small. George Lucas's yeah. breakthrough film was American Graffiti, which was again, a tiny little budget and South Park was a tiny little budget. Um, and so this is the thing I'm actually most curious about. Like I am very excited to see what a Steven Spielberg does. Um, mm -hmm. but the thing I'm most excited about is there have got to be more, you know, Dennis Hopper's Quentin Tarantino's, um, you know, George Lucas's out there. Um, and they, you know, they, they, it's just like the founders we work with where they, they all have some vision when they're 20 or 21 or 22, but if they have to wait 10 or 15 or 20 years to get to the point when they can raise the money to be able to build the thing, like they may, and, and they may not ever do it because they may just get pulled into the existing status quo system, you know, back, back, yeah. to the, back to the original question. But, you know, the idea that any 20 year old with an idea is going to be able to make a movie, like we, we could be, we, we could see a creative flowering here, you know, yeah. of, uh, across many kinds of media that is really extraordinary. Yeah, and I think kind of, you know, going back to the original question, um, you know, about kind of this, like, okay, you know, will Hollywood, will this change Hollywood? I think that it kind of gets this larger question of society. And I think that, you know, historically, the unhealthy, like, you know, societies that end in, you know, kind of the murders of their own people and these kinds of things are the ones where, oh, there's an idea that I don't like that somebody's put out. And so my idea is to censor and repress and crush that idea is the is the worst kind of societies historically and the best kind of societies are 
oh, I have the tools and the distribution to get my own idea out there. And uh, you talk about this a lot in actually the creation of the United States is one of the great things about it was, you know, all of the kind of founding fathers had their own personal newspaper, <laughs> which they would write under. Um, but like if they didn't like somebody else's idea, they just wrote their own idea. And that's, you know, such, you know, that's a free society as opposed to a, a highly repressive society that says, oh, my God, somebody says that that's dangerous language. That's, you know, this kind of thing. That's that kind of thing. You know, yeah. let's kill it. Uh, and that's, you know, once you think that's the way that it just it generally always <laughs> ends badly. It always ends with uh you know, kind of this kind of mass, you know, mob justice, uh, mass murder, these kinds of things. Yeah. Yours, yours, I think all yours, Cambodian is called year zero. Yeah. Look, the, the American revolution was, um, is, you know, the, the, the printing press really took off as something that just, you know, the, the actual printing, like the printing press is a product that many, many people could buy and run print shops. Um, and then ultimately run newspapers like that, you know, that was a 17th century phenomenon. And I think that's is, to your point. That's exactly, that's exactly correlated with like the fact that the United States was, constru you know, constructed in the 17th, 18th centuries. Like it was, a, it was sort of a direct byproduct of that. Yeah. Right. Kind of the, the cultural foundation of, of the whole place. Okay. Do you think people care? This is from Scott Westman. Do you think people care about the provenance of content? And do you think that will change over time as AI becomes more prevalent? Yeah. Provenance of content. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, yeah what do you think? I don't pretend to know exactly uh, what uh, Mr. Westman uh, meant by that. Well, there's a bunch. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, it's like, well, you know, I mean, let's take it most, most basic level, you know, the, you know, where, where did it, like, what was the origin? Where did it come from? I mean, you know, I mean, where this comes up very specifically is around like deepfakes, right? So yeah. like, uh, and, and by the way, like, you know, there've been people have been like raising concern about deepfakes for the last few years. Yeah. They are starting to work. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right. Um, and so like, you know, look, did this politician actually say this thing? Um, yeah. You know, like for sure, you're going to care a lot you know, there, and you're going to need, you know, you're going to need to type. And we have, of course we have, we have companies working on this. I said there'd be a huge thing going into the presidential election of 2024 for sure. Cause <laughs> by October, <laughs> they're going to be working perfectly. Yeah. And look, by the way, like, you know, look, there, there are people who will say this entirely technology problem. I guess I would say is like, look, people have been misquoted forever. Right. Like, I, like, yeah. I don't know about you, Ben, but like I've been misquoted in the press many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're actually, misquoted on a quote that I gave. <laughs> oh, which one is that? Uh, the, well, I referred to the, so there, I need to explain this carefully so I don't get attacked again by the Washington Post. Uh, oh, yes. But, or the New York Times, I think it was in that case. No, it was, anyway, it was the Washington the, Post. Uh, yeah, uh, okay. What I had said, I was referring to, so there was this uh, kind of, uh, the, the, the kind of Reddit group uh, on, um, who was, uh, following at that time, GameStop, uh, referred to themselves. They used a, an anagram for traders, which was, uh, retard <laughs> or trader, which was retard. Uh, and they called themselves the retard revolution, which was kind of like the anagram of a trader. Um, and as the Washington Post did hundreds of times, in referring to them, I referred to them as the retard revolution because that's what they call themselves. Uh, and uh, Mark, 
got absolutely ripped and an attempted cancellation by uh, a Washington Post journalist for using um, the word retard, uh, which he did not, I did. Um, but I said it in a context that everybody in like polite society used. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't use it to, you know, attack a person's character or describe a person or denigrates a special needs individual. That That's not what it was, but, you know, uh, that does happen from time to time. Misquotes. Right. And then I got it. Right. I got attacked for something you said, which I had not said. Yeah. Yeah. That you didn't say at all. Right. Right. So first of all, this reporter's running around saying literally the reporter's running around like we're in fucking junior. We're, we're in like junior high with like, you know, Andreessen said the R word. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, you know, as if this is finally the yeah. excuse to like, you know, cancel me and ostracize me and, you know, get me fired yeah. and all the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. There, um, there were certainly better excuses to do that. But. There, there, there always are. So, um, you know, so, and, and then literally my response was like, no, like I actually factually did not say that. Like it's not, true. <laughs> yeah. you know, it was this other guy <clears throat> who I happen to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> well, it's very kind of you not to mention my name, <laughs> given I was the other person on the show. Right? But, but fortunately, <laughs> Exactly. But fortunately, there was a recording of the clubhouse room at the time. And uh, so there was literally a recording. So you could go back and you hear you could hear that I hadn't said that. And I don't, I don't know, Ben, if you remember, but the reporter in question, I'm sure this tweet has long since been deleted, but this reporter was basically called out, you know, a bunch of people figured this out. And, and you know, this reporter yeah. has sort of fans and detractors. And so a lot of these reporters, just detractors on Twitter were like, you know, you, you know, you, you got it wrong. You need to apologize. And this reporter literally said like, well, I, she, she said something like, well, I can't be expected to keep all these old, bald white guys like separate. <laughs> this is very offensive. <laughs> yes. Yes. Cle clearly hate speech, by the way. Um, uh, uh, clearly, clearly, clearly racially and follically loaded hate speech. Uh, 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 being, and, and, and of course, overt ageism um, uh, uh, being deployed yeah. there. But, um, but, but it's actually, it's actually, a, you know, it's a funny story, but it's actually a micro, it's like a micro version of this, right? Which is like, okay, who said yeah. what and when, right? And yeah. who knows? And like, is it, you know, like who's, who actually said what and when? Who were these people? Right. And, you know, look, in the future, it's yeah. going to be was Mark logged in, you know, was Mark logged into the system at the time? Was Ben logged in? Were they actually speaking? Is this actually their voices? Did they say this? Is this the yeah. real recording? Right. Um, and so, I mean, even even outside the realm of politics, like just like basically who does what and when, who says what and when? Like it's it's going to be very very important to like track to 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 track all this. Um, and so yeah. I I I think I think the answer to that I think the answer to that I think is you know yes absolutely a hundred percent like systems for establishing provenance are going to be extraordinarily important. Like the you know yeah. future society is going to basically run on them. And luckily we have a we we have a perfect technology <clears throat> for establishing tracking provenance in a way that. Uh, is unbiased and can't be corrupted, which is the blockchain uh, crypto technology. And so, you know, hopefully, <laughs> uh, you know, in our in our zeal to ban everything, we don't ban that. Well, this is the irony is that many of the people who are the most worried about the provenance problem are also the most intent on banning blockchain. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right. Um, it's why kids, well, for the kids in the room, it's important to understand the basics about a technology before trying to ban it. <laughs> exactly. And so all <laughs> of the people worried about deep fakes. Like. Yes, exactly. So all of the people worried about deep fakes should definitely be 100% opposed to uh, the uh, outlawing blockchains because that is the obvious answer. Um, yeah. And because uh, everything else is prone to manipulation and abuse, um, and so may maybe at some point the powers that be will will figure this out, but we'll see. And I, uh, th this kind of leads into the next question from uh, Dee Dee Fellman, which is, 
What do you think is the future of copyright protection in Hollywood? <laughs> yeah, I think you know. Quite honestly, I think we probably covered a lot of this already. Like, I think it's yeah. it's going like I it's going to it's, it's going to continue to be obviously very important, but it's going to change a lot because people are going to want to deploy creative assets and likenesses and voices and personalities and so forth. Um, and content and do remixes and do combinations yeah. like at, at like far higher variety than in the past. And they're going to yeah. have the tool set to be able to do that. And so th this goes back to this, this, this kind of thing, which is there is a creative flowering that's possible here and a gigantic growth of the industry that's possible here. But, you know, look, it, it, you know, it is conceivable that the, you know, that the laws, you know, either the current laws or new laws will prevent that from happening. And, and, you know, for people in these industries, I think they should think hard about that. Andrew writes, will this finally get us out of the nostalgia loop? I.e. Barbie. <laughs> I think he meant E.G. Barbie for those of our who, us who are Latin experts. But There's this guy, Paul Scalas, uh, the Lindy Man. Um, mm -hmm. And he did this very interesting thing on what he calls stuck culture. And it's, it's actually an internet. It's actually a thesis that the internet basically changed the evolution of culture. And basically his theory is as follows, which is basically, well, he, he, he has the strong version of the story. And he basically says, culture stopped in 2005. Hmm. Um, and he basically says, like, if you play a video game from 2005 and a video game today, it's basically the same game. If you listen to, you know, musical, you know, pop hit from 2005 to today, it's basically the same song. If you, uh, you know, buy a, if you bought a cell phone in 2005 and you buy a cell phone today or, you know, whatever, 2007, yeah. you know, the iPhone 2007, like the iPhone in 2007 and the iPhone today, they basically look, you know, they look exactly the same. Little, it's a little bit thinner, but it like looks exactly the same. If you bought a car in 2005 and a car today, it's basically the same car. Um, if you watched an action movie in 2005 and an action movie today, it's the same movie. Um, if you buy a shirt in 2005 and you buy the same shirt, you know, buy a shirt today, it's the same shirt. And he's like, look, like, this is really weird. Like, it's been nearly 20 years. Um, and like, why does everything look and sound and feel the same as it did in 2005? Because if you go back, if you back to us this idea, like, you know, we know, we all know, you know, if you grew up in the U.S., like, you know, you're of a certain age, like you can tell at a glance the difference between something from the 1950s versus the 60s versus the 70s versus the 80s versus the 90s. Like they all have a very distinct aesthetic and a very distinct design. Um, and basically yeah. his argument is like basically that process of sort of design evolution um, has basically stopped. Um, across a, a lot of fields. And to the extent that you you, you buy this, the, the the his explanation for it basically um, it, it's, it's the impact of the internet, but in a very uh, specific way, which is um, if somebody's interested in something weird and offbeat and different, um, you can get that on the long tail of the internet, right? And so if you're interested in like some weird new kind of music or some weird new kind of like graphic design or some weird new kind of like software or some weird new kind of whatever, like there's like some subreddit or discord group or something or Twitter micro community or like whatever where you can like go down is there's a million of these tiny little rabbit holes that you can go down. Right. And, and, and amongst all those rabbit holes, there's still tremendous cultural creativity happening, but it's fractured across all these little rabbit holes. And then if you're a large company trying to bring a piece of clothing to market or a movie to market or a video game to market, you mm -hmm. basically are, have become risk averse. You, you basically don't want to deviate out on the cultural fringe because the people who right. want cultural, right? You see what I'm saying? The people who want the cultural fringe are no longer your already audience. Already have it. Yeah. Already have it. And so the people who are left are the people who only want the mainstream, mainstream, the most mainstream normally thing they can possibly get. 
And, and so from that standpoint, and this, and this is, you know, the, the, the critique, the standard critique here, of course, that, that you see, you know, Paul argues that this, this, this principle applies across many fields of creativity, but the Hollywood version of this is the, is the complaint you hear all the time, including from people in Hollywood, yeah. right? That it's basically that, that, that Hollywood movies, like a, an extraordinarily large percentage of them are either franchise, you know, they're either Marvel, you know, Harry Potter, a small number of franchise uh, kinds of things, you know, or their or their remakes, right? Um, and, or another term for a remake is like a nostalgia act. And so, yeah, the, and so look, and you can say this about the Barbie movie, which was like, apparent, I haven't seen it, but apparently like a lot of people think, you know, it's obviously a very well-made movie and very creative in many ways, but like it, it's consistent with the stock culture thesis that of course, the well-made movie that, you know, got, you know, made all this money and got all the people in to see the theater was like a plastic toy from the 1950s. Like we, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> you know, it's stock culture, right? Right, right, right. Um, right. It would not conceivably have worked had it been about, you know, a new toy or a new toy introduced in the last 15 years. Right. In fact, if you were going to make a movie today about a new toy introduced in the last 15 years, what would it even be? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there, yeah. there is nothing right. The, the, the toy company, their argument would go. The toy companies are, are recycling the, the, the old concepts, just like just like Hollywood is. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, what this basically says, it's like a barbell theory. It's basically you have a massive amount of cultural fragmentation happening on the long tail. And then you have correspondingly a massive amount of cultural centralization, risk aversion and sort of nostalgia. Yeah. Right. Ha happening at the head. Now, look, having said all that, Oppenheimer, you know, disproves, you know, uh, Oppenheimer, you know, somewhat disproves the thesis. Right. Which is like, I mean, and Oppenheimer was backward looking in the sense of it was about something that happened in the 1930s and 1940s. But like, look, it was an original Hollywood movie. It's not like it's not like Oppenheimer was like top of mind for everybody. Right. From the last. You know, yeah, years. No. For, no. Right. Like, you know, yeah. he was a real historical figure uh, from way back. You know, look, Oppenheimer, look, Oppenheimer I think, is going to top a billion dollars in the box office and is like, you know, a fantastic success and is going to sweep the Oscars and, mm -hmm. and so forth. And so you could you could argue that Oppenheimer disproves the stuck culture thesis. Mm -hmm. The counter counter argument to that is, yeah, if you're Christopher Nolan, you can make the original movie uh, on that kind of budget and have that kind of success. Right. But like, you know, name the next one. Right. And, yeah. and the next one was Barbie or before that, the next one was was the new Top Gun movie, which, again, like a great movie. But, you know, uh, you know, people do a remake sequel of a movie made 35 years ago. Let's pause there and say, like, do you buy the thesis? Let's start with, like, do you buy the thesis? And then let's 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 diagnose what happens next. I, I do in pieces, but I, I think it's probably, it's not 100%, right? Like, so so there there are things that leak through. There's, uh, you know, there's certainly, like, a lot of the stuff in music going on with things like Afrobeats is, at least seems different than what we had in 2005. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and as you said, you know, you've got things like Oppenheimer and so forth. Uh, I, I think, you know, Kanye clearly made an entirely new shoe with the Yeezys. Like, they, I don't think there's any arguing that. Um, so now he is, he is, in, you know, he is who he is. So, uh, you know, maybe he's a Christopher Nolan of fashion or that kind of thing. But uh, so I think a lot of it is true. Right. A lot of it is true. The convergence of um, many creative art forms into kind of like a single set of ideas is is definitely happening. Yeah. And then basically the lens that I put on it, and Paul talks about this a little bit, but I'll, you know, just with the investor kind of hat on or the, the, the sort of business hat on, you know, the lens that you put on it is in economic incentives, right? Which is if you're going to mm -hmm. deploy $300 million to make a movie, and you could deploy it into another Marvel movie or another Transformers movie, right? Um, no. Or you could deploy it into an original screenplay. 
in this context, like you are overwhelmingly likely to deploy it into a known franchise, right? Or a remake. Um, right. Because you, right, right, right. you have built an audience. Yeah. Right. Build on, and, and you have enormous risk aversion, which is you just don't know if there's an audience out there for something that is genuinely new. Gets you out of the hits business. Yeah. Know, and into yeah. the franchise business, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that I, I, I think that's why I'm so fired up about the, the sort of augmentation aspect of this or the tools aspect of this is I think if you bring down the price of originality, the cost of originality, like if you make it possible for people to exercise creative originality at a fraction of the price, mm -hmm. I, I think that I think that has a potential to take a creative medium that maybe is, is in this kind of stuck in this loop. Um, and I think it has the potential to maybe unstick it uh, in a very exciting way, because all of a sudden you can have the creativity. If you can have the creativity at a fraction of the price, all of a sudden the risk aversion fades, right? Um, and you just have like a lot more production of a lot more original work. Yeah. Um, and so that, 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 that's my optimistic view, which is like this, 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 the, these tools are actually the answer to this problem. Okay, uh, let's see. Um, making original content is expensive. This is an interesting geopolitical question. AI will make it very cheap to outsource. How do we keep the jobs in America? Yeah, so, I mean, look, like, well, let me ask you this, like why, why is Hollywood, why is American content so dominant? And then, well, then of course, the next question is, and then, it goes, and then, of course, is it like? So, so this is a really interesting question right now because, um, so for my lifetime, America has completely dominated global culture. Like they're massively, if you go anywhere in the world, everything. Um, all the cultural changes, you, you know, for those of us who lived and were able to travel internationally in the 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010s, now 2020s, what you've seen is an amazing transformation of cultures all around the world towards American culture, like everything, you know, fashion, music, art, movies. Um, I'd say that very recently um, that's really starting to change. And I think, you know, music, which is sort of a little bit the cutting edge of culture, uh, everybody I know in the music industry goes, well, this is a big change in the last five years is that many of the biggest artists are coming out of Mexico, South America, um, Africa, uh, Korea, um, like, in in force and and those artists are actually now uh exporting their culture to a large extent you know back into america um i was just uh, I, I would say in like hip-hop like uk rap is now kind of probably gone past uh american rap um at least currently you know in terms of quality uh and it's certainly different like it's it's their culture that they're they're exporting um not our culture that they're importing at this point uh, and I think a lot of that has been a function, you know, music, at least of streaming music, the Internet, um, these kinds of things uh, where, you know, the distribution monopolies have all been in America. <laughs> the cultural distribution monopolies have historically been U.S. You know, based. And that's given our creatives a massive advantage over, you know, kind of the global creatives. I think that the, you know, like there's a lot of negatives to that. Um, you know, to us controlling global culture. I mean, it's been awesome for us, uh, but it's, uh, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, people around the world probably have a different view of that. So, so it's a, it's been an interesting change.
Yeah, and I look, I think more voices, you know, I'm generally of the view kind of, you know, the world is kind of shrinking, you know, with airplanes first and then the internet. Uh, and so we're all kind of in this together in a sense. And, you know, the one thing, one, the kind of strong belief that I have is that, you know, getting all the ideas out there um, and heard is very, very important if you want to get to the best ideas. Uh, and I think that's true in politics and it's true in, um, you know, in, in creativity and music and culture. And so, you know, having, you know, if AI is a force for that, I think that's a, a strong positive, at least in my view. Yeah, you know, there's a thing that comes to mind as you talk about this. It's uh, Marshall McLuhan had this term called the global village. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the global village was basically like when the entire world was wired together, like it would be like everybody's in the same village. And and it's actually interesting in that the, the term village just sounds kind of quaint to our ears. And so it's like everybody's kind of in the same, you know, town square or whatever. But village has like an older meaning, like a village is a place of like intense conformity. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Like a village, yeah. a village is a... <laughs> good point <laughs> right like for anybody who grew up in a small town right um like the the, the nature and characteristic of a small town like when, when you see fictional portrayals of a small town how big is your town mark 1309 people including the cows <laughs> that's small <laughs> the actual reality of life in a small town is everybody's in each other's business all the time um yeah. and everybody's watching everybody else and the social conformity pressure is super intense yeah. Um, and the sort of um, what the uh, tall poppy syndrome is like in full effect. Um, and it's like it's it's, you know, and it's this is very kind of primal human wiring. Right. Which basically is, well, the survival of the town, you know, from a, from an ancient history standpoint, the survival of the town or the village matters more than the survival of the individual. And so you need people to really yeah. be come together as a collective. What's that? It's Confucian. <laughs> the, good yeah. the good of the individual must be subverted for the good of the whole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then in Western prehistory, you know, it's very, it's also very similar, like, you know, Western prehistory, Western prehistorical, you know, basically villages, cities, they called cities, which were really villages, you know, they were, they were this weird kind of hybrid of like, they were sort of communist and communist and fascist kind of simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, they were communist because like they, you know, they had a share, you know, you, you didn't have a critical mass of a, like a market economy. So you had a lot of sharing, but they were fascist because like, you know, somebody was in charge and could take other people's heads off. And so it, it, it's this way, it's this sort of form of communal living, um, you know, that, that you look and, you know, in the modern era, a lot of people who grow up in a, in a, in a, in a small town like that, a lot of them move to a bigger city in part because they want more cultural, you know, diversity and they want more ability mm -hmm. to express themselves and have original ideas. Yeah. So McLuhan used the word global village and he kind of used it as a negative, which is, he's just like, look, we're going to slam everybody together into the equivalent of a village, but like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to have this like hyper level of conformity um, where you're just going to have right, very, you're, you're going to have, you know, tall poppy syndrome exercised globally. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, and this, and again, this is kind of consistent with the Paul Scalise's stock culture thing. Um, uh, it's, everything's just going to become extremely self-referential and, and risk averse. Um, yeah, it's almost like for every one creative, there are now like 9 billion critics. <laughs> yes. That's another, yes. That's another way to put it. Yes, exactly. Right. Everybody else is a critic. So yeah, look, I think there's a big argument. There's an argument for just literally, I think there's an argument for like the health of any creative medium there's the argument that you just, you actually want, like, you actually want cultural, you want, you want some level of like cultural differentiation. You want some level of geographic differentiation, right? You want like, you know, and then the local environments need to be at some level of critical mass to be able to like attract top end people and do great work. 
Um, but you actually want like, you know, quote unquote diversity, you actually want like cultural diversity placed, you know, geographic diversity, and you actually want places, you know, to feel, you know, you want it to feel like it's not the only place. And in fact, you actually want a competitive effect, you know, where the different places are actually competing with each other to try to outdo each other. And, and, and by the way, like, look in film and tell, well, actually, especially in television right now, it's like, you know, look like, you know, the Korean, like squid game was like this, you know, massive breakthrough, but like there, there is a, there is a, you know, what it showed is there is a creative community in Korea, you know, built doing like top ends, like, you know, full on Hollywood quality, you know, uh, uh, television entertainment. Now Israel has its own, you know, scene like that. The UK has its own scene like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, Stockholm yeah. has its yeah. own scene like that. And so, you know, and a lot, and a lot of the great, you know, American TV shows the last 20 years are actually remakes of a show from the UK or Israel or, or, yeah. or something like that. And so, you know, it, it showed like the, 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 the creativity in that field, I think maybe shows the advantage of having multiple locations. Um, yeah, and by the way, those, a lot of those shows are very original, like Fauda out of Israel and Squid Games out of Korea, right? Like they're, um, <laughs> they're not stuck culture. <laughs> yeah. There is some new culture coming from other regions. I was with an Israeli uh, entertainment industry couple recently um, and that are very involved in all this. And, 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 you know, they're like, well, you know, and I was like, wow, I really like what, what's happening in Israel. And they're like, well, what show do you really like? And I, I knew as I was saying it, I was, you know, I was like, oh, well, Fauda. Yeah. And, 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 and they literally, you know, they laughed and they were like, yeah, we knew that's what you were going to say. Cause that's what everybody <laughs> loves. But also they said, you know, look, like, is it bad that basically what, is it bad that the most famous show that wins all the awards coming out of Israel is literally about like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Like, it, it, like, is it, is it a, is it a cliche? Like, it, how do they, how do they put it? Like, it is, is really, is really that's the thing that we have to offer to the world is this like horribly fucked up, you know, geopolitical thing that we have going on. <laughs> killing each other like is that really what we're known for and i was like look like you know and, and is it like bad that that's like the peak of our of our creative capability is that and i was like look like it's your point like that wasn't going to get in america that wasn't going to get made in america right like no. america or, has, certainly not correctly you know certainly it, not with nuanced as that show is yeah. exactly and and for people who haven't seen the show it's about this israeli special forces unit that goes undercover in the in the palestinian territories uh actually as as arabs um, and it turns out there is a real Israeli special forces unit that does that. And the guy who actually is the star of the show is actually, unit, yeah. was the guy who actually did that in real life. And then yeah. they're actually filming in, you know, they're filming in and around those areas. And so if you're, you know, if, you know, if you're from the, you know, if you're from like the U S or whatever, and you just like would have no way to ever experience this kind of thing, like you're really getting a slice of life of something happening that you would never, you know, you would never get exposed to. Um, and so I'm like, look, like it's, you know, look, it's, it's real. Like it's a real thing. It really matters. Uh, it's really important. Um, and I would never have gotten to see that otherwise. Um, and it's, it's, you know, on top of being super relevant on every possible, you know, geopolitical front, everything, it's like incredibly well executed. You know, it's clearly creative professionals at the top of their game. Like, it's amazing. And like, you know, the, the answer, anyway, the point being is like, the answer maybe is like, we need like a thousand times more of that kind of thing, right? Coming from everywhere in the world. Yeah, and I and I think that, you know, the, the, the other thing that you alluded to is like, if you've, Think about that show and anybody who's watched it, how enhanced their understanding of what's going on in the region as opposed to these cartoon versions we get, you know, either in the press or from politicians um, is profound. And, you know, like that kind of thing is completely lacking on, say, you know, the the uh, Ukraine-Russian war right now. Like, right. do you know, <laughs> like, I'd like to think, you know, I know what's going on, but I, I certainly don't believe I... I know from like all the Twitter experts and, and what I'm reading in the press and so forth, you know, it'd be great to have, you know, like, you know, real uh, geniuses who 
understand like humanity and human nature and are our great creatives, you know, making, you know, helping us understand these things and helping us understand the world. Uh, and By the way, this, this new technology will be an enabler for that. By the way, let me close on a movie recommendation, actually. Um, a movie that I just love, and I think it's on Netflix. I'm pretty sure it's still on Netflix. Um, it's, a movie, it's a movie called By Bust, uh, B-U-Y-B-U-S-T, as in like a, uh, a, a, it's a, a bust of a drug buy, uh, so By Bust. Yeah. Um, it is a Filipino, no, uh, yeah, Philippines. It's, it's shot in Manila, Philippine filmmakers, actors, actresses. Um, and it's an action movie um, shot on a shoestring budget. Yeah. Um, about the drug war in the Philippines, you know, which is like super intense around, you know, Duterte and like, you know, tons mm -hmm. of controversy around all that. And, uh, but it's an action, it's a, it's a, it's a wall to wall action movie. It's, it's a, the, the tagline for it people talk about is it's, it's John Wick set in the uh, Manila slums. Um, <laughs> and wow. it, it lives up to that. And again, it's not like, this is not a Hollywood, yeah. this is not like a $200 million movie. This is like a $2 million yeah. movie. Like they shot it, you know, with very little money. Yeah. Um, so you, you you need to put yourself in that mindset, but it is two hours of like just wall to wall. And they literally, they literally shot it in the Manila slums. Like they shot it yeah. on location and it's, it's like, you know, it's like politically relevant. It's like socially relevant. It's incredibly well acted and performed. Uh, but it's the kind of thing where you watch it, you watch it after two hours and you feel like you've been in, you know, you feel like you've been in a place uh, that you never would otherwise get to go um, in a yeah. very kind of visceral way. And so anyway, if, if the future of the decentralization of, of, the, of the industry is, is more projects like that and, and Fauda, I think we're, we're I think the, the world the world is actually going to be in, in, in very good shape. That is awesome. I, and I've got like one quick closing anecdote. So I took a friend of mine who I grew up with to the Adele show in, uh, in Las Vegas uh, over the weekend. And he said, wow, I'm so surprised how down to earth and like she curses and does all these kinds of things. I thought she'd be so prim and proper with that British accent. And I was like, no, she has the low class British accent, not the high class British accent. She's from, you know, she's from the hood. And he goes, oh, you mean like the people in Top Boy? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. And so it's bringing the world, uh, you know, closer together, a much better understanding of each other. So uh, there we go. Kudos, kudos to global distribution of creativity. Um, all right. Well, that is our show for today. And thank you for listening. And please join us next time on the Mark and Ben show.